my name is Adam Canal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise Podcast. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a long while. I was at, le- at least five years, if not longer, because I think last time we saw each other probably would have been if I came on campus from Montclair after Iceland, and that would have been 2016, February, March, April. Yeah. So that's five. So at least, so at least five years. Yeah, we. I think we we graduated at the same time, right? 2015. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I periodically, uh, I, well, I need to do something about this cable. Hold on a second. <laughs> you went to BGS, you, you went to Bowling Green after Montclair, right? Yeah. Good uh, shit. Okay, I think we're good. Can you hear me? <coughs> yeah, you hear me? Oh, I can hear you beautifully. Very yeah, good. man. After uh, uh, graduating, I took a year off and just worked and prepared for graduate school applications and shit. So I wasn't, I was like kind of on and off campus periodically for performances and stuff during 2016. But yeah, you went to Iceland? I went, I, so I did like a, a semi, like, what the fuck was it? I did the um, performer certificate thing, but for composition. Mm-hmm. I worked with Marcos for a semester and then went to Iceland, did an artist residency. Um, and that was pretty fucking fascinating. And then ended up applying to grad schools while I was doing the residency and got into Pitt. And I've been here since uh, fall 2016. Nuts, man. Yes, yeah. that's a ride right there. I love. Uh, well, we got to give a big shout out right there. You just did to Marcos, uh, Mr. Marcos Balter. Uh, beautiful person mm. are we on the air already uh i already started recording it um cool cool and by the way we can go as long as you want to um you know like i well i was mentioning it in our email and our correspondence but um yeah as long as you want to go i have uh, i have some water i have some scotch and uh we're good baby <laughs> very good very good cool yeah shit. man but dude what was iceland like like I I've been to uh, I've been to Spain and I've been to France uh, for a brief period, you know, just like a couple of weeks. But yeah, I, I was in Iceland from December seventh through February twenty eighth. Uh, that was really wonderful experience, and really life changing too because uh, big uh, big artist colony seven and a half hours north east of Reykjavik. And just living there with uh, for three months with a bunch of artists who all different disciplines, and it was really interesting to see what kinds of overlap there was uh, in terms of how people might generate a creative product. Doesn't matter what the medium is; it's just very interesting to see people may actually be starting off like from very similar and simple places like you, or they may be like oceans away. <laughs> This is my normal asthmatic uh, acid reflux cough, so don't worry uh, about the COVID. Did you take uh, one of those things to uh, uh, like an acid reducer thing for your chest? I did for a long time, and it actually caused other problems. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah, but uh, 
but yeah, back to Iceland. It was it's challenging though because um, especially during the winter when you're that far up, we the residency kind of sold itself on being in the middle of the winter darkness for two to three months, and the first month really was just getting used to waking up at whatever time you woke up, being no sunlight, going through the day with no sunlight, and then the day ending with no sunlight. And I think there was one house of artists where it's like they would get up at 10 in the 10 in the morning, they'd have breakfast together, they'd work collectively, they'd have lunch at like five in the afternoon, and they'd have dinner at 10 at night. And it but it was it's really something being out there just with these other artists and just like breaking bread with them and talking about what they're doing, what brought them to that point and that kind of thing. And you learn and you learn a lot about creating in general. And I'm really and I'm really grateful for the experience because it was the first time like messing around with improvising with um, non-musical media. So like have someone who's doing speech or someone is dancing. And those kinds of experiences are really important to sort of like break out of my shell, which five years ago, I was I was pretty rigid in terms of how I approach composition and making art in general. So I have I would say that was a pretty transformative experience. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, getting to see the the Northern Lights was fun. But for me, it was more along the lines of really getting to see what kind getting to experience firsthand what kinds of stuff you can get out of um, working with people outside of your immediate domain. And yeah, I, I like to think that it's only gotten, the connection's gotten more deeper and interesting over the years. It's, um, it, of course, being the, the hardest part being like jumping in and allowing yourself the freedom to try these things and realizing that in the beginning, if you make mistakes or if the product isn't great, um, learning how to take that as a jumping off point to just keep going and going and going and see what happens. So, yeah, that was a really, really fascinating experience. I don't know. I'm just I'm just rambling now, though. So, Dude, well, you are the featured guest today, man. So like and, and also just like sitting here getting to talk to you is so exciting. I mean, I had no idea you were in Iceland and uh, had that sort of experience. And I mean, it sounds like you got so much out of it. I'm I'm curious with uh, with you said you worked with was it a a dancer and a, a like a, a a speaker or like a, someone with speech? Yeah, or? so I buddied up with a couple people while I was there. So I had my first like I had one of my first experiences uh, setting a piece of music to somebody's film, and it was a pre-existing piece that um um uh ended up just fitting the sort of tenor of the film and the setting and the feeling that he wanted. And so we ended up using um, a, an excerpt out of this 14-minute piece of mine. And um, it was just a shot of a boat leaving the, the harbor for 10 minutes. And that was, that was the scene. And it had these really um, quiet, gentle, sort of beautiful Morton Feldman-esque textures going on, and then you have these really complicated beating patterns between the cello, the clarinet, and the bass, and you can sort of get, feel, almost feel like the water moving sort of kind of thing, just from, and the way the three, the three elements act, worked with each other, the, the picture of the boat, the ensemble, 
and then this overarching darkness and it real it led to a really fascinating product that is just like whoa this is a thing <laughs> um and yeah and so there was another uh, there was a writer who i hung out with a lot there and she and i bounced ideas off of each other and we tried to do some things where she would do spoken word i would do either something on piano or bassoon um or just asking each other for general feedback on what we were working on was really insightful and really interesting. My favorite part of being in this little residency program, though, was we were in this really, really tiny village. It's less than 800. I'd say it was around 800 people, maybe, probably less. And it was a fishing village. So a lot of the people who worked out at sea would be gone for a month and then they'd come back for a month. And then the only other nearby neighboring town, I think maybe had 1300 people and was connected by these two tunnels that were collectively seven kilometers long. And at nighttime, if you were really crazy and really brave, you could go into the tunnel and play, play your instrument there. And you would, it, you'd get this tremendous reverb from playing in this big ass tunnel. So I was there playing bassoon one night and a couple of other people tagged along because they were interested to see what it was about. And there was some, I think the camera guy was shooting video and uh, this one actress movement uh, artist in residence who was also there at the same time started dancing. And that was a really interesting experience to see how is she reacting or to what I'm producing and what does how how are we communicating basically without words of course and in mm -hmm. real time and that was sort of the first time trying to do anything like that um it's interesting i hadn't thought about it this way but it's bring it's um i feel like i'm revisiting a lot of those themes and things that i was interested in five years ago or has introduced to five years ago but in a very different context now that we've been in well, we're out. We're technically out of quarantine, but we're still living and working at home. So, mm -hmm. it's uh... yeah, yeah. That's that's a whole other sort of level of improvisation that has to take place. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I love. I yeah. this was an impromptu performance, sort of thing, like in that tunnel. Yeah, total. It was total. I mean, we planned to go there, but we didn't really set up any rules for what was going to happen. Um, also, and there was an, and because this tunnel was so huge and straight, you could just set up, if a car was coming, you could move yourself off to the sides and nothing would happen. But, and I, I think I have a recording of this somewhere, but there's a point during the improv where this big truck comes through and as it's, as it's driving by, I'm blasting a multiphonic and you can hear the driver honking the horn at us. <laughs> So how, was, how did the uh, how did the pitch of the horn interact with the multiphonic it was too powerful the multiphonic got drowned out ah damn uh, we, we got to get you a, a megaphone next time <laughs> what about your instrument like how because it's it's cold there right bassoon the bassoon was fine uh i probably should not have been so cavalier about it you you were going with it, man. You were you were feeling the flow and like letting it happen. Yeah, uh, my my bassoon has been through a lot of abuse. Uh, I'm very grateful for her, and I 
I should uh, take it out and play it again someday soon. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> I think that tends to happen, you know. I mean, uh, well, I guess it depends on if, like, with the uh, composers who are also performers, but like. You know, when you when you when your main focus is composing, you sort of drop out of playing your instrument after a while. You know. Yeah, I always struggled with that, uh, especially as a bassoonist, because you have the added issue of having to make your own reads all the time. Yeah. And I didn't. I never. I mean, I like working with my hands, but I never enjoyed working with them enough to fully dedicate the time to making a new read every. Uh, as often as you do and um i had and i had always sort of real i it took a long long time to realize this but there was a very very palpable disconnect from what i was writing if it was an instrument that i couldn't play for example like if i'm writing a piece for clarinet or if i'm writing a piece for piano instruments that i don't really know how to play and i'm not working super closely with the performer and i can't send them things every so often um, there was a severe disconnect on what the material I was writing and what I thought I was going to hear and then what the actual result was. And it was, it was extraordinarily frustrating for me. Um, but I, even though I didn't necessarily like writing for bassoon, I found that I never really had that problem when I was writing a bassoon piece uh, or a saxophone piece because that was my first instrument. And after starting uh the program at Pitt and um increasingly getting deeper and deeper into the traditional Japanese music um partly as a means of exploring my own uh Japanese roots and all that but a lot of it had to do with I need to have my music making actually connected to a like an actual source of sound that I feel is tangible and immediately responding um and as I started playing more traditional Japanese music and getting more comfortable with it, I actually started experimenting more and more on the shakuhachi, getting back and getting more and more interested in improvisation because for some, I don't know why or how this ended up happening, but there was something about this connection with shakuhachi that allowed me to sort of start really experimenting with sounds in ways that I felt I was not able to do with on bassoon and I'm not talking about like double tonguing and flutter tonguing and multiphonics and all those things because you can do them on both instruments but there was something about the physicality and the way that you play shakuhachi that uh, was sort of has gradually been unlocked that in a way never happened with me on bassoon I don't really know why um, but there's the, again this element of like the physicality of writing at an instrument and being and like actually going through the entire arc of what you're doing and so a lot of the past four years has been trying to like find a really really consistent way of being able to produce the sound in like immediately with myself the worst case scenario being like i have to use a midi keyboard or something and then sort of program it out that way um or i'll write it on shakuhachi and then i'll switch it up to a clarinet part and I'll be like I have the vaguest idea of what this is going to sound like but um, I've realized that that this sort of divide of like writing away from an instrument um, kind of is impossible for me <laughs> these days and I'm it's both wonderful and frustrating be, um, but 
it's definitely been a really interesting process. Um, yeah, I, I, dude, that's, that's, uh, you're resonating. Everything you're saying resonates a lot with me. I mean, the music, I, I, I run into the same sort of, uh, uh, situations where, you know, writing something that might have like sound based techniques or something like that. And it's like, or even just using like a multiphonic or, you know, some sort of alternate fingering. It's like, I don't know if this is actually going to work or how is it actually going to sound what I'm thinking. And then having that, that disconnect of like, I don't have anyone that I can send it to or the person who I need to send it to like is unavailable or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. But uh, oh, what was I going to say at the end there? You, uh, what was the last couple of things you said there with the Shakuhachi? Well, there was, I think the, the really important part about it was unlocking the physical connection to really making sound and really just going for it. Mm. And again, I, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, in New York who also is a bassoonist and plays shakuhachi, and we think there might be something to do with how it's an inherently really awkward instrument where you're, you're sort of, your hands are like this, your shoulders are kind of in an awkward position. Mm. And then you're also at the mercy of the seat strap, which is kind of a bizarre thing. And I mean, it's as well designed as it can be, um, but there's something really difficult to navigate for me when my body is set up in this position. And I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't quite know what it is, but there's something about being able to rest this way with the shakuachi. And then if you're doing the traditional way of sitting where your knees are folded over each other, while it's very uncomfortable, you're also very deeply rooted into the floor. And there's something that I find really centering about playing that way. Mm. And if you're playing, if you have all holes to closed, you have some sound going out that way. You also have some going down that way, and the sound will bounce up from the floor and hit you in the face. And that's kind of a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, this this ability of really needing to hear all of the sounds that you're making, and uh, which I mean is kind of the thing that you're told from day one: you have to be able to hear what you're producing otherwise there's you have no hope um which in and of itself is not always the case though because uh we have text-based music where it may not be as specific but this is but i don't want to extemporize too much outside of things that i don't have any experience in because that would be inappropriate <laughs> for lack of a better word well you have your perspective like your understanding from what you, you know as, as yeah. much as what you've experienced. And I don't think that's a um, unfair or inappropriate so much. Um, you have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, I like, I like what you said about the shakuhachi kind of bringing out like this, this other way of thinking about the music you're playing and what you're writing. Did you, I, I want to understand I got this correct. Did you say when you play it, you you sit on your knees with your feet underneath you? Yeah, I'll show you for a quick sec. So yeah. the old school way, you'll be sit, sitting on the floor and it's a little hard to see, but mm -hmm. my knees are bent over like that. Mm -hmm. That's like, um, I feel like, I feel like there's a, a like, uh, some amount of yoga in that you know 
I don't know about yoga. I don't know about yoga. Um, I'm sure there's connections to it. It's. Um, I think it has. It. I think it has. It, or it has roots in Zen Buddhism. The instrument does. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, even though I've been playing for six, almost seven years now, I don't know if I'm comfortable talking about the history of the instrument so much um <laughs> well it's, it's your, your level subject. is way beyond mine so <laughs> <laughs> anything that you have to say you'll be educating me i promise that and 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 probably a lot of people who would listen to this i mean you know yeah so for those of us who, for those of you who have not uh had experience with the shakuhachi before i'll just give a real crash course it's um a five hole uh notch-blown Japanese bamboo flute, which originated from, has roots in China. And I be, it uh, first came to Japan in the eighth century as part of uh, the Gagaku Imperial Court Orchestra. And it was, then it was a different instrument. It was shorter, it had one extra tone hole and uh, uh, used, was tuned differently. Um, and then, the shakuachis that that we know and love today and play the, and is the most commonly played one sort of came out uh, first arrived in Japan allegedly I believe it was 12th century and would develop over the next 800 years or so and become the flu that we know and love today um, I don't want to get too much into it because I am, am blanking on a lot of the specific details um, and uh, do not want to do any disservice to the instrument. I will say though that um, some of the early, it's believed that some of the earliest shakuachi playing was used as um, a basis for a spiritual practice where you would um, create you would create your own flute. Um, you would breathe in, you would exhale over the top of the of the flute where the blowing edge is, and you would produce a sound. And you would repeat the cycle over and over again until you until you hit a state of enlightenment. And this blowing of the bamboo, which is called suizen, um, became this uh, the essential activity and means of reaching and attaining enlightenment of a certain sect of monks uh, who I be- they believe are called the Fuke monks. That sect of Buddhism is defunct as of eight, the 19th century. Uh, during the Meiji Restoration, I believe. Um, but uh, it's interesting because uh, I, for me, when I started playing shakuachi in earnest, it wasn't about necessarily meditation or reaching enlightenment or anything like that. It was really, I wanted a physical means of just communicating with my, my roots. Um, and uh, it's been a fruitful, uh, fruitful, investigation i'd say more than an investigation it's taken hold in quite a profound way so um yeah and it's really amazing that um uh let's from here to for one second we'll take it out maybe i don't know (laughs) Uh, you know know that moment when you're speaking you're speaking you're speaking and then you thought you had a train of thought and then it turns to word soup and you're lost I, you know, man, that's been happening to me a lot lately. 
it's been like i'll be having a conversation with my girlfriend and we'll be saying you know she'll say something and then it'll like spark this thing in my mind and i'll be like oh my god and i'll start talking and i'll, I'll like be dissecting whatever it is and then i finally reach the point where i'm about to um, make the point make my point and i don't remember what the point was <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> it's, totally. a, it's a long travel um what did this stem from uh elizabeth brown oh absolutely uh, elizabeth uh was the one who got me started on on all of this really um what was it we we met her in 2013 i think right yeah uh, it was, it during was like... a part, it, it was uh, one of the parch concerts i think mm-hmm. um and then she started working at montclair in the fall 2013 2014 and then she was there 2015 yeah so at least that's what i think um but it was um I owe a lot to Elizabeth because she was the one who introduced me to all these actual hands-on experiences working with traditional Japanese instruments. Um, in New York City specifically, you have Colum- the Columbia University has got a, a traditional Japanese uh, instrumental program that's open and free to the public. I did not know that. Um, yeah, run through in- the... Institute for Japanese, um, sorry, Institute for Medieval Japanese Studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still operating currently through um, remotely, of course, um, now. But they're still going strong and doing the thing. And while I was at Montclair, I was able to go and join this program uh, Thursday nights. I was only able to do it, I think, in 2015 and 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would go and you'd get to learn how to play a traditional court music. And at that time I was doing mostly reeds. So I started playing this uh, double reed instrument called Hichiriki, which is a very uh, powerful uh, double reed pipe instrument. It's uh, about this long, I think. And it has a range of an octave and about a major third, perfect fourth, um, but it has this incredibly rich sonorous sound. And the, the the court music is really beautiful and fascinating and has this sound that I can only really describe as vertical, like walking through a forest and just kind and really just allowing yourself to kind of start from your hips, go down and just really try and feel all of your bones as you're walking. That's, that's kind of how this, that this music feels to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, this sort of profound weight and connection, if you will. Um, But so while I was doing the Hichiriki and the the court music, I was also trying to learn how to play shakuhachi which at the time felt like a completely Sisyphean effort because I could do all of the proper fingerings and could sing a lot of the pieces, but I couldn't actually get a sound out for about a year. Mm. Um, But I continued doing it and um, started really being able to get a sound out. Actually, I'd say 2006, like second half of 2016, I was finally finding a way to make it work. but the funny thing, though, is that it really, really took off, I'd say, when I when I came to Pittsburgh. And I think a lot of it was um, sort of yearning to go back 
and work with uh, Elizabeth and uh, Ralph Samuelson, another amazing shakuhachi player and teacher who's in New York, and just to continue deepening this connection. Um, and, st and still continuing to study and work with them. And that's been a tremendous, uh, tremendous experience. I, I have, it's hard to find words on, uh, to say how much it has changed my life in so many positive ways. Um, and it's, it's interesting too, because uh, with this, um, from going from one instrument to another, and again, thinking about physicality, um, you don't play shakuhachi like you play bassoon. It's totally different <laughs> instrument, and so going from one way, you it's like learn it. I wouldn't say it, it, saying it was like learning how to walk again would be really extreme. And but going from a double reed to an, a flute with no resistance is a really weird experience. But then learning how to like changing the way I sit, the way I stand, the way I do all these things, and now being aware that I'm leaning forward and having awful posture. But like, <laughs> you know, these these sorts of things. Well, even even like you said, like uh, the way that you sit on it is totally like, you don't sit like that when you play the bassoon. You know? No, that would, that would be kind of funny. That would be really funny. Yeah. I, I think uh, like what you said earlier too about the way you hold the bassoon too. I, I always thought that like like I always when I see a bassoonist playing I'm like that looks so uncomfortable like it's a challenge it, you know your arm is up like this and it's like you're perpetually carrying a suitcase or something you know like <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I have um I my I think my left shoulder for a long time was actually uh severely it was pretty badly developed uh, muscle-wise in comparison to my right side. Mm. Um, I don't know if it was entirely the bassoon's fault. It probably had a lot to do with just my regular way, regular ways and habits. Um, but yeah, playing shakuhachi uh, helped me rethink about a lot of things. It, I mean, there's a, it was a really, really long process though, and I'm not saying I'm done. I'm like, I'm barely scratching the surface on all these things. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I know with guitar, <laughs> like or at least specifically classical guitar. I mean, classical guitar, it's almost similar. Where like bassoon, you're like this. Classical guitar, you're like this. You know, yeah, and you got this. You got the stool too, right? Yeah. Well, here's the weird thing that I I always had trouble with posture too because like I use the stool. Yeah, like for your left leg. So like, yeah. uh, for anyone who doesn't know about classical guitars. <laughs> Often uh, we use this footstool that you you mount your left foot on so that you can raise the guitar on your left leg, which makes it more accessible for the left hand to play the strings without straining your wrist or anything. And um, there's other things you can do as well. There's like a um, a cushion you can put on your leg. It almost looks like an, an apostrophe. It's uh, like a oh, little yeah, pillow. Those are awesome. I, yeah, I always wanted one. And I never got one. But and th this is part of my problem with posture was like, I had that stupid stool. And like, when you have that stool, when you have one leg lift off the ground, all of the weight, uh, all your weight leans to the side that's being lifted, right? So yeah, all the, the weight was on my left butt cheek. And oh, no. as I'm playing, I'm also tilting in like this. So like, I was contorting my body. And I always got like right back here on my shoulder. Like it always got strained or pulled and yeah. 
And then when you go to compose, it's only going to be worse because we're usually we're usually using like similar related muscles and like just for lack of a better word, just completely fucking it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also just sitting there. I mean, yeah. when, when I moved to Bowling Green, one of the first things I bought, which I have right here right now, is my um, um, drafting table, the table that comes up, you know? Yeah. I never had one. And then when I went into grad school, I was like, I'm buying a drafting table. And cause I, I couldn't stand doing this. Like, you know, oh, like, I should, I should do that. I should do that. Um, you read, I, I think it was, I think it was Morton Feldman who said in, uh, give my regards to eighth street mm -hmm. that composing would be so much simpler if you could just find the right chair. <laughs> and whether or not he, and I, I might be paraphrasing, but for me, when I read that quote, I think it was six years ago was the first time I read that quote. I was like, this isn't just composing, though. This is pretty much like if you can find the right chair to sit in, you can do just about anything, mm. um, which is really interesting because it, you like take, for example, if you're seated properly, it's easier to breathe. It's easier to then circulation is better and then immediately the idea of processing information gets easier right mm -hmm. your your blood is oxygenating oxygenating your body and so i i don't know i'm totally extemporizing that. well this uh, this is really interesting actually because uh my girlfriend and i were having a conversation um you know have you seen the documentary on glenn gould I th it might be the 33 short films or something i haven't seen it but i know but what he had the 14 inch piano bench yes the one that he carried around with him everywhere. Yep. That right there is an example of having the right chair. <laughs> you make it work, you make it work. Exactly. I mean, it's it's incredibly bizarre, but at the same time, like he it like having it, it makes so much sense. Like he has to play at a different piano wherever he goes, if he's at like, you know, some venue in, in Europe or something. If he has his chair though. That's the that's the uh, um, what's the word like the the common denominator. Like, I don't I don't know what the word is I'm trying to say right now. Well, it it's uh, it allows you to properly do the things that you need to do. It's mm -hmm. I don't know if common denominator is the term that I'd use, um, and I don't and I've stopped thinking about it as bizarre because mm -hmm. everybody has their their quirks or their thing that really enable enables them to do what it is that they want to do um mm -hmm. and it's and it's funny i uh occasionally just you sit there and you think about how you're sitting are you okay and all those things it's like if you can if you can start from a good from good posture or something like that that's fabulous <laughs> i know i'm gonna i know that you're gonna post this later and then i'm gonna watch it and i'm gonna hear myself talking about posture and i'm gonna be like okay what am i oh shit. <laughs> yeah here i am like shifting in my chair like all right let me uh <laughs> find the proper yeah. proper alignment <laughs> <laughs> yeah. as you hear in voice lessons often yeah yeah, I, it, should take, I should take voice lessons. That'd be fun. I took a semester when I was in county college, and uh, it was immensely uh, like it, it. The the things it did to my voice was amazing. Um, I feel like with the voice, the voice is probably one of the instruments that who the teacher is and how they teach really matters a lot. 
Well, I think for vocal music and vocal, uh, or having limited experience and taking lessons and whatever, but you're literally a, the resonating cavity for sound. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get much in like, that's a pretty pretty intimate way of making music in and for a long time i was afraid of writing for vocal music because i was afraid of engaging with text because that sort of embodiment and recreation that intimacy was really scary for me for a very long time um and like i often i wonder if i had been a voc if i had done more vocal stuff not even to say to become a vocalist, just like engage with it more. Like how different would my development uh, in arts be? Because for a long time, I, I kind of guarded myself against it. Um, it's, and I think I kind of came at it from the backwards way because like if we're talking about me doing shakwachi, I nowadays I do a lot of singing while playing, humming while playing screaming while playing, aggressive breathing, and all those sorts of things. I never felt comfortable doing any of that on the scene. Again, not really sure why. Um, but there was, a, there was a period of time on Shakwachi where I couldn't, I, my left hand was really messed up. Um, and it was difficult and sometimes painful to play. So instead of actually picking up the instrument and playing, I would just sing all of the melodies. Um, and also just a really good way to practice if you're like, I don't know, at the airport or on the bus or whatever. And if you don't get sick, uh, in those modes of transportation, transportation, you can go and hop in the shed, grab a pencil and do what you got to do. <laughs> um, but it's interesting though for me, cause with bassoon that, that vocal, I was never able to actually use my voice while practicing bassoon music with Shakuachi it became easier. Um, and I mentioned Gagaku earlier before, which is the court music. Um, in the way, way back when, um, when well, the old school way of learning it is you would learn all, you would learn how to sing all of the music first and memorize it. Mm -hmm. And then after you've memorized all of the music, you're then allowed to learn one, like physically get your hands on one of the woodwind instruments. And then after you've learned how to do all of that, you then learn how to play the string instruments. And by the time you've mastered the string instruments, you then are playing the percussion. And those are the guys who know the pieces inside and out, and they're running the ensemble and rehearsals, basically. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's the progression. It's been a really long time. <laughs> I've only just re-entered the Gagaku circuit. Um, since they've gone remotely and that's been really amazing experience to reconnect with everyone and learn how to this time around i'm playing um a transverse flute called buteki and or learning how to play it i should say um yeah go ahead how um how old are people when they typically start doing gagaku it's different now i think there's a apprenticeship program that high school students and like college undergraduates can do um, they're also community, I think there are like, um, there are many different entry points. I remember when I did the Gagaku Mentor Protege program in Tokyo in summer 2016, 
I think there were a couple of guys probably in their 40s or 50s who did it as a hobby. I don't really remember, though, off the top of my head and would have to do some uh, Google Google searching to figure that out. Right, right. Okay. But everyone everyone has to start from um, uh, the, the voice and then work outward to instruments. Yeah. And for me, that's I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Um, going back to that thing that I was telling you about with this, um, you have to hear what you're writing. Um, so back in May... I signed up for an online uh, summer festival and it was percussion and got in and said, okay, you're going to go write piece for two percussionists. And I think it was June and I was trying to sketch things desperately, frantically, just trying to find something that worked. And the bottom line was I could not hear a single thing I was writing. <laughs> And I was completely devastated on top of the, the depression from being at home and watching the news every day and just like, oh, God, what the hell do we do? <laughs> um, and I had this really, I got to have a lesson with one of the guest clinicians. And I remembered this experience that I had when I was in Japan learning, doing research and learning about traditional music where... Um, this no performer, no is a type of traditional Japanese theater, um, kind of uh, nudged, nudged, and was like, all of you Western musicians are so concerned about looking at each other and giving you these big cues. We coordinate, we coordinate everything with our breaths, and we're li and we're listening really, really, really carefully, and this sort of embodiment of it all. Um, and then at the end of that conversation came the, the, one of the most interesting things I've ever heard, which was if, if you as a Western musician had to rely so much on cueing and then you came up, you were asked to write a piece for a blind person, mm. couldn't see what you're doing, how would you, how would you work with that person? How would you write with that person? And when you start thinking about limitations like of that caliber you really start rethinking what it is that you're doing so the next step for me was okay let's pretend that sight the excitedness the ability to see music was not an essential point and i started experimenting with just recording materials and then trying to imitate the sounds in real time not and i none of this ended up getting written down and what I ended up with instead was producing these audio scores, wherein I send a recording to a performer and I ask them to um, create as much of it as they can in real time. And then in some cases, they're very heavily layered. And so I'll break it up into like four or five parts. And so listen to the individual part, try to recreate as many of the sounds in real time and record yourself doing it. And then we'll put all of them together and we end up with, it's not, a, I call it a translation of the audio score um, because I want them to really, be, I want the performers to really be able to own this, this piece and say, this is my label on it. And I don't want it to be something like where you're playing a Mozart, where you're playing Mozart or Bach and you phrase something a specific way. To me, that's too nuanced. That's too, too specific. And, um, 
and re like I really want to uh, allow these performers to sort of express themselves and use these as templates to recreate the sound in a way that they can have a lot more fun with it. So for me, the percussion piece was a perfect example to do this because I could just make a series of sounds and I say, I want you to recreate this sound and I want you to see if you can do something better than what I've done here. Mm. And it also goes back to that sort of age old argument. It's like, how can me as a, like, for example, how can I as a pianist or as a horn player tell a string player to do something? <laughs> Mm. Whereas, like my instrument, like if you're a pianist, the piano, unless you're using fishing wire on the inside of it, doesn't sustain. Even using the sustain pedal, it's not a sustain. But so, it having done six of these different audio score projects with about ten different performers, I think you get a lot of different responses to the same stimulus, which has been really, really exciting for me because. In a way, it's in a way it's more direct than written notation could ever be, and it is significantly more intimate because I'm literally whispering a sound into their ear, and it's really fun to get to talk about the different ways that you can approach making that. And I think in every instance, the sound that the performer has made has totally kicked the crap out of whatever sounds I gave them. And it's just been so, and so as terrible as the last eight months have been, this sort of realization has been really life-saving for me as a composer. Um, and uh, yeah, so that is that. Dude, I, I, this is one of the, the, the fascin very fascinating things that uh, I've learned about you recently. I mean, like in corresponding leading up to this uh us talking right now when you told me about your audio scores i was like what is an audio score and like and you <laughs> you know and you sent the video which uh you're you're cool with us playing right here right yeah yeah go uh, for okay it. um i i it's it's such a fascinating thing um i have like a bunch of questions about this that i'm like because it, it's so fascinating for one thing is i'm gonna ask two of them in a row so one thing is how did you come upon this solution? Cause like you were saying that you, you didn't know how to, how to do these sounds and stuff like that. And then there was the one person who was like, Oh, you Westerners, you rely so much on someone telling you what to do. So like, how did you figure out I need to just record it and then tell them to do the same thing. And then the other question is um, that, see, I hit that point where I, I don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it might come back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the other question? Uh, the oh, oh, the blindness. No, not that. Uh, how do you know when you're done with the piece? That's an interesting question because, in a way, these compositions, for me, the way I have been writing them, I found that the good point to stop is not actually the point where you feel like I've made it as perfect as possible. I actually find that. I've sensed each one, each audio score hits a point where it feels like if I make this too perfect, then it loses the point of being translated. Does that sort of make sense? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Like if, if you're, if you're being too, uh, like you said, nuanced and precise about what needs to happen, yeah. then you're going to lose that, that like authenticity. And well, I, I don't like the word authenticity um, in this case. Well, maybe authenticity is a decent word for it. But it gets, it's like 
once you pass that threshold, it's like, why don't I just write a fixed media piece then? Sure, sure. And that's not what these are about. Um, I have a couple pieces that use electronics and or fixed media and the live instrument. And so then you're at the mercy of like getting it absolutely right. Um, and at war and like, it can be fun and it can work and there is success and there are many successful pieces that do that, but there's also sort of this inability to breathe that comes out of those kinds of compositions. Um, like getting down to the half second and you, and again, you can do a lot of amazing stuff with it, but unless you know the tape track intimately, it's very hard to give it that same organic feeling, which is interesting because at the worst points, I, I, wor I do sometimes worry though, that this kind of a project would be like, it has to be exactly the right sound and this and this and this and this and this. And no, I want this to be like going through a jungle gym. Mm. And it's more, and again, it's more about what can you do in a given take rather than this sort of perfect recreation of what you see on say like, uh, this is not meant to be a judgment, but like say for example, Fernie Ho or Richard Barrett, mm -hmm. information, there's a lot of information to sort through. And I, part of this uh, conversation that I have with myself about this is, is that kind of notation the most effective way to get this kind of a sound soundscape? Mm. Um, and again, yeah, I just want the performers to have fun with it, like being in it, like playing in the dirt and the sand. Um, and also one of the other ways I know the material works is I will actually play everything in these audio tracks. So in the case of uh, Clepsidra, which is the second one, I set up a series of parameters, which was I would play six different tracks. I would, I would improvise and record six different tracks of myself. Um, they would be no shorter than two minutes and no longer than four and a half minutes. And then all of them would be time stretched to be seven and a half minutes in the end. Um, and each track had a specific instrument. Um, then I put it all through Ableton, and then I put it all through Ableton, time stretch everything, seven minutes, seven and a half minutes. Um, and I only allow myself to use a certain amount of parameters, usually panning and um, panning and just changing the dynamics for balance. Um, and then beyond that, I, bas I basically give it to the performers. Um, and say, here, here are the, the rules, pick and choose anything that you like, anything that makes a sound that you like. And I use this glass and a couple of them and just fill and like sounds filled it up with water, hit it, drank some water, gurgled. There's one piece actually where I, um, was, uh, couldn't stop coughing <laughs> and that and that piece was originally a 20 minute take that got crunched into a six minute piece uh -huh. and then four different layers and that was fun but yeah the, it was uh, this sort of moment of realization came during the percussion workshop when i was talking with one of the guest clinicians and they said yeah why if you're if you can't hear this if you or doing what you're doing like writing down these things with super bowl mallets on bass drum mallets that and you can't hear the sound um, 
why are you even trying to work with a material you can't control you don't know how to control or you can't hear um and i said just start making noise record it and see what happens and i said and i was like holy shit i'm just gonna yeah it's like okay just hop in the sandbox make sound and then but i found that the more interesting thing was not writing anything down and going to the percussionists and saying we have this amount of time here's the sound how would you make that sound and what would you do to make that sound and like i said every sound that they came up with was so much more fun <laughs> well that's the thing that's so great about that is is your you're actually writing it to that performer and and uh and so that like like that guarantees that they'll be able to deliver on what you're writing as opposed to being like oh how what how do i write how do i play the sixth tone like with the fingering is whatever i i, I can't get it like you know yeah I, and like i said it's just really fun to learn about a performer in that in that sort of way um I do fantasize about sort of taking this project another step further, which would be um, getting like a bunch of maybe like five or six really dedicated high school students to like, you could take one of the simpler audio score projects. A lot of them are really complicated, but I've been trying to think of ways to make one that could be broken down and dissected and like, you make it into a communal project of how do we take a single audio score and then break it down amongst six people. Like, cause if you make music this way, you can really challenge this idea of instrumentation or like ensemble, or you could do it with 12 people and it could be the same piece. And I'd be really interested to see what kinds of solutions they come up with. Because again, I think it's more interesting when you give the performers this kind of wiggle room to mess around and see what they can do with it. Similarly, um, they can choose to only fill in like two thirds of the piece and then they can pre-record all that material, turn it into a fixed media track, then play the fixed media track in a live concert setting and then have four of them do like a, a live uh, performance, um, semi-improvisational using the fixed media as a template to create music. Mm. So I, don't, I, I want these to be like living, breathing objects something that's i feel is very difficult to do with written notation at least right now uh, ask me in 10 years i have no idea what i'm going to say about it but. yeah yeah well it's i mean there's a lot of like uh it makes me think of the cage you know um but not even not only just like his his philosophy but i've i've read several interviews with, with him where the interviewer asks him what the definition of music is and his, his definition is never the same <laughs> you know so it's like yeah in 10 years i have no doubt that you'll be like oh you know i'm doing this now <laughs> you know, i got something totally new going on with uh kazoos and like you know dripping paint i don't know <laughs> i'm a big fan of the dripping paint sound oh that's a beautiful one right there is that is that something that you've worked with yeah so i did i send i sent you the piece that got played by andrea and jay from hypercube right you did. I haven't watched it yet. I haven't watched yeah. it yet. So that audio score is four different track, two different tracks. Sorry. That piece is called How Things Are Unmade. Mm -hmm. There are four audio, there are four parts to that audio score. Two of them are the sounds of me painting. 
<laughs> and those are the those are the twenty minute uh, things that I talked about. Uh-huh. And it's me using a, a palette knife, painting really aggressively for twenty minutes, uh-huh. and drinking tea. And I cough in the audio. I I cough, I snort, and I burped in that take. I think um, <laughs> a little bit of still, everything. Yeah, but and then cr- and then crushed it to a six minute piece. And the other instruments that were used in it were um, singing bowls. Mm. Um, and those, I allowed myself a lot more freedom in terms of what to do with the, the um, like panning. And in this piece, I introduced shift uh, pitch shifting as an option too. So there's um, the sounds of me painting, I actually I think over the course of four minutes, um, dip four octaves. <laughs> um, I don't remember how it's it's because a lot of the content is uh, inharmonic. It's um, difficult to say, but it's also been about a month since I last listened to it. Um, right. But that was a really fun project too, because it um, like, how do you then use a, like piano accordion and then the guitar sounds? And that was a really fun process too. Um, and hoping to do more things like that where I can introduce like the sounds of painting into music directly, but it's messy and I don't have a water resistant microphone yet. Oh man. Maybe, we, maybe you could just like uh plastic wrap it, <laughs> like, <laughs> throw a Ziploc yeah. bag over it and like <laughs> turn the game way the hell up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's ways around it. That, that even adds a whole other level of like, uh, you know sound like i don't even know it it intensifies it in different ways that is unplanned you know i I don't want to forget about your audio score i want to i want to uh yeah i want to make sure we get that but before i do i want to make sure also that you can hear it as well you're gonna play clepsidra right yeah 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 i've i i'm i actually wouldn't if the sound is not on it's okay because i um there's also the added uh, choreography of the piece wherein a colleague of mine here at Pitt, Chris Staley, um, improvised dan- uh, movement according to what he was hearing. Um, so, and then I put together a video where it's two of him dancing on top of each other, basically. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what the the uh, the video was. That yeah. Um... And so I was when I when I asked him to do that, I was very interested in like what would happen if you say, recreate the sounds you're hearing through moving. Don't don't make sound, but just move. I don't want to give anything away before I play it, but I will say that I thought he did a fantastic job with the sounds and everything. Yeah, I was I really really stoked. We're gonna we're doing. He did movement for how things are unmade, and he's going to be doing another one uh, for another audio score called Sonic Cartography. When is that planned for? December 11th or 12th, I can't remember. So that's I will send you soon, the, man. I'll send you the info as soon as I have it. Uh, do you post this stuff on, on uh, your website at all? Yes, I do. Okay. The website needs an update. <laughs> I love your website. It's like, 
uh bio something else and then more and then more is this huge drop down <laughs> menu of like everything <laughs> yeah I, I oh boy yeah that need, that needs an overhaul <laughs> it's it's fun though uh, i'm gonna share my screen with you because i have the video up right now i want to see how this um all right can you see this yes sir all right i'm gonna play it real quick and let me know can you hear it you're good man you're okay, good. share computer sound i think i got it all right that's it can you hear it yes Ah, beautiful. All right, I'm going to start from the beginning. All right, so for the next seven minutes and 18 seconds, people, we're going to be listening to Devin's, uh, how do you say this? Klepsidra. Klepsidra, all right. And for people watching, you get to see the footage. For people who are listening, you get to listen.
Ooh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> this is my second time listening to that. Uh, I'm going to stop with the sound, make sure it's... Uh, all right, I think I did it. Stop sharing my screen. I don't know if you can still hear. Wait, let me. I'm gonna play this real quick just so I want to see. If... Yep. Can you hear that at all or now? Nope, can't hear it. All right, good. I just wanted to make sure that we're still uh, <clears throat> we're still recording too. Um, yeah, you're not gonna hear any weird sounds coming from me, dude. I see you have a beer right there. I have scotch right here. We need to do a cheers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pour real quick. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about this, man. That's uh, whew. I am. And the performers it. are uh, Sarah uh, Alice Daranka, who is the flutist for a Pittsburgh-based uh, new music consortium called Cameraton. And uh, again, on movement was Christopher J. Staley, who's a PhD candidate in th uh, theater arts department here at Pitt. And uh, tonight we are drinking triple caramel, triple caramelite Belgian ale. And you got what did you say you had, uh, Johnny? Johnny Walker Red. Johnny Walker Red, nice and simple. Cheers, my man. Cheers to you, sir, and thank you again for inviting me on the show. My pleasure. Glad you could be here. Skull. Mm. Oh, not bad. Not bad. I haven't Very had beer good. in a while. I would love to have some beer right now. Uh, don't do it. Your your belly will be very will uh, let everyone know you've been drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think yesterday was a, there was plenty in my belly, so uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. It's a uh, it is the day of like ultimate vice and butter, right? <laughs> oh my god, I I um we had some ham that we just like based with all kinds of crap. And uh, we made, uh, my girlfriend and I made like pumpkin pie and we had this sweet potato with like the marshmallows broiled on top. And, oh yeah, yeah, you did it right. We went deep, man, we went deep. Um, one of the things that I love about that, that piece and the video, the performance with it is, you said his name's Chris, right? Yes. Chris, uh, his movements, I think, work completely contrary to what i would expect someone to move in the regards to the the amount of activity within the piece and i and no, i mean yeah. and i and i yeah, and yeah, yeah. that's coming from a place where i'm like oh that was that was fantastic he, yeah, he his his movements are so slow and it's it's like almost like he's like it's like a self-reflective thing in a way you know oh yeah and i really loved the approach to space and the this circular nature of it was one of my favorite things about it um and clepsydra is uh, i think it's the oldest form of or one of the oldest forms of telling time it's a water clock um so as water leaves i think that's how you're able to trace how time is passing something along those lines um but it's really in piece like that is was really interesting because in a certain extent, we were working in our own sort of clocks and our own, on our own time and own environments, very much in a in a vacuum, actually. So the way this piece came about was I actually had hoped that someone else would end up playing this piece. But then I got approached by Sarah and she said, uh, I can play this old piece of yours. Um, 
and uh, but wondering if you wanted to collaborate on something new. And I said, as a matter of fact, I have this. And then a couple weeks into, like a couple weeks after experimenting with different sounds on everything from Renaissance flute to bagpipe chanter, why don't we why don't we uh, see if we can't add movement to this? And I thought about Chris, who I've known for the past year at Pitt, who does a lot of work in theater and movement um, in this with the and his he does research on the Suzuki Company, which is a, a theater troupe in Japan. He also has started doing some workshops on Nogaku, again this traditional Japanese uh, theater form. And I gave I gave him very little instructions in terms of what to do. I just said react to the um, to what you're hearing. And he came up with a series of rule, rules of his own um, using a series of something called the viewpoint techniques, which I want, I'm going to look the name up so I don't get any of this wrong. Um, Is that like a, a, a theater or acting sort of thing? Yeah, let me, let me pull up the, the little thing because it's his words and I want to use... I, don't want to get this wrong. <laughs> did you did you overlay the video like that, or was that was that? Yeah, I did the video and I did the um, the mixing of the the final tracks and all that. So the the way Chris came up with the movement is um, the what he writes in a recent proposal that we put together was um, a third element of improvised dance was added to the tapestry through the use of the viewpoints work developed by Mary Overly and picked up by other postmodern choreographers and directors like Anne Bogart. The dancer responds to the audio track non-hierarchically, allowing for the live presence of the environs to impact and alter the pre-recorded soundscape. The dancer mimics the same creative process as the flutist uh, listens to the audio port scores and interprets this sound and reacts to them in real time. And if memory serves, there are six specific uh, parts to the viewpoints. He goes on to say that um, the viewpoint text, or for those comfortable with this vocabulary, performers might avail themselves of the original viewpoint taxonomy from Mary Overly, space, shape, time, emotion, movement, story, or the nine viewpoints of space and time as described by Anne Bogart and Tina Landau. And those are spatial relationship, architecture, shape, kinesthetic response, tempo, duration, gesture, floor pattern topography and repetition. Now it's interesting thing, uh, interesting because um, depending on what kind of like musical composition you're thinking about, maybe if you think about like Zanakis or Stockhausen, this idea of spatial relationship and shape and architecture um, are pretty salient. If you're working like, if you think about like Gruppen or Kare, where you have three orchestras or four orchestras and so there's something very, for me, when he was describing this process to me, there was something about it that felt very natural. And uh, I kind of wish I could think of a better word, but it's very musical in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. um, and the two sort of jive very well together. But also, it was interesting to, or one of the things that I like about these particular two tracks um, he sent six videos originally for Clepsydra, 
Um, but those two in particular, when put together, I think really sort of brought forward the claustrophobia that all of us have been feeling and the sort of tension, um, which, as you're saying, is kind of in direct opposition to the, the sonic element, which is this really high-paced, frenetic barrier of noise, mm. which is which I kind of mixed in a way that was... Uh, meant to be very forward and non-apologetic if you will <laughs> i there was a point as it got louder and louder where um i'm wearing my headphones and and i'm like i think this is okay i think this is okay and then all of a sudden it got like flutter tongue and everything i was like i gotta turn it down a notch <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I i liked hearing about the explanation the the six different uh aspects and the nine different aspects because yeah. it's it's the same thing with composing. I mean, like you talk yeah. about like duration, timbre, articulation, um, momentum, continuity, variation, like all these things, yeah. you know, uh, and then the spatiality of it. And I, yeah. I always I always think about that one. Groupin is a good a good example. Uh, I think about that one Zanakis orchestra piece. I can't remember what it's called, but the conductor is in the middle, and then the ensemble is within the audience surrounding the conductor three hundred and sixty. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know which piece. I think I know which piece you're talking about. Um, I can't, I can't remember what's called. I, rem I think there's a video of Matthias Pinscher. Yes. Yes. A, was it like one of those big festivals, like Donaueschingen or something? Yeah. Pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, it's 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 so uh, it's always interesting to have that uh, immersive experience. It's always it's always like really exciting to be a part of that um yeah and and that's something that that you, you definitely get watching your piece i mean even that yeah. little the little flame uh like the the burning campfire in there like i i i love it. it's just so interesting having like uh his the foreground or um there's like two chris's there's the foreground chris and then the background chris and then within that there's just like this flickering campfire yeah amongst this like chaotic like you said frenetic sort of uh like um i don't know like like especially during the high moments with the flute going up high and and uh uh, uh yeah it was it was an interesting like juxtaposition that i thought worked really nicely yeah and it, for me it also again like i said there's sort of this claustrophobia that really came across and even I don't think it was intentional, but when you when I overlap the two different videos, nothing lined up, and I think that was because the video the camera might have moved like an inch or two, mm -hmm. and so you end up with this real you end up with this really blurry and complicated image. And then when I think about how we sort of how this piece was sort of put together, and that Chris and Sarah weren't talking to each other directly, and there was like me in the middle calling the shots, who then previously written everything there's something that felt really strangely analogous and i might be ascribing to the to the political or the way things felt politically it's like we get our news from only specific sources and we work within our collective echo chambers mm -hmm. and there was something really really bizarre and kind of now that, that that might have been a moment where I was like I'm I'm overthinking my compositional process <laughs> to the point that is detrimental but there was something really really weird about that is like what what have I done <laughs> Oh man 
Well, you're uh, you're not at fault, man. Don't like <laughs> you did nothing wrong. You you orchestrated this awesome project that uh, you know, like they both had total freedom to do what they wanted. And but I I, I do have to um I do have to say that I've had that similar sort of reflection with like things that are happening, even whether it's political or not, or even just personally in my life, and then seeing it reflected in in how I interact with like the music I'm writing or the relationship I have with the performers I'm working with or whatever. And it's, it's often alarming, like, Oh shit. You know, <laughs> but it's funny. You mentioned earlier, it's like, how, how do you know, maybe not that the piece is finished, but it's on the right track. And it's like, that's definitely one of the ways I know a piece is going in the right direction. Like for the past seven years, I'd say that's very much the case mm -hmm. where if something feels right, it's gonna stick. It maybe not feel right, but there's something about it that's gonna stick out in a way. It's gonna make you really take a second to give a good hard look at it. Um, and I remembered um, Dean Drummond once was talking about why we bother with theoretical analysis, and it's sort. I think it's these sort of moments where you're like there are a couple of things that are lining up here that are making this moment or this particular thing stick out. And there may or may not be an actual reason to why it's working. Mm -hmm. And if there is, okay, that's great. But it's that initial need to look into it closer and be like, wait, what? Yeah. So sort of going I, to a different level there. Yeah. I mean, I, I have these, I, I, I like to think of sound of sound in relation to picture and moving images and things like that. So like an early example was when I was working on a bass clarinet concerto for a friend of mine for my senior recital at Montclair. And I knew there were a couple of sounds that I really wanted to be the highlight of the piece. And it was the sounds of tubular bells being dipped into water while um, the strings were playing these really low glissandi drones and you have this sort of watch of very very flexible pitch centers and it was and i never wrote it down but i i kept the sound in my head off and on for six months and then it's like yeah this is there's a reason why this stayed and everything else got thrown out it's so funny to hear you bring that up because because one thing i was at that performance when gleb did the concerto that was fun and I remember you experimenting with the pipes. I was sitting in um, um, the, the lounge right outside of Leshowitz, right? On the second floor. And oh, yeah, I, that's right. You were I, I heard like this like, like, like I, and I could hear there was water involved. I didn't know what was going on. And I look up and you were up on like the third floor balcony next to the orchestra's rehearsal room with like a tub of water or something, I think. And like you were doing the thing. And I was like, what is going on, man? <laughs> that was so much fun. Uh, it's awesome to hear you to hear you uh, bring that up. Cause I, I honestly forgot about that. But it was it was an awesome performance. Gleb is phenomenal. And uh, and it's it, I, that was a, a sort of pivotal moment for me because I don't think prior to that moment I ever considered the use of water in, really? in, a, in a piece of music. Yeah. Or if I had, it was completely just superficial, you know. Well, thank you. That's a very, very, very nice of you. <laughs> totally, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but that's that's interesting to hear i what what is uh what like are you is the audio score thing your this is like sort of your main focus now as a composer now well it's definitely taken up a lot more of my time and energy than i thought it was going to hmm. um it's definitely an extremely powerful means of collaborating. And I really love the, like I said, I love the amount of freedom and range that this gives to performers. Um, and also that these pieces can breathe. Um, I am not, I'd say it's probably 60% of it. The other piece I'm working on right now is um a um, multi-tracking piece for traditional Japanese instruments through, um, through this uh, program at Columbia. Since it's being done remotely, I'm trying to take advantage of the situation as much as possible in that we have tools that are disposable that may or may not have been so easy to use in previous instances. So like setting up click tracks for 17 performers in a real life situation is kind of a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, doing it remotely is actually not that difficult. Um, and there's certain and there's certain things that you can do in these situations that are difficult or impossible to realize in a real life concert setting. So I'm currently focusing a lot on that composition for this Gagaku Orchestra, which is going to be seventeen piece, seventeen people or something like that. Um, but beyond that, I've actually um, I had one piece that was premiered um, November 12th, I think it was, by Cameraton, the, the ensemble that I mentioned previously. And that was a 13-minute song cycle. Um, and uh, it was really, I've kind of been in a place where I'm reevaluating what the pros and, like, for me, what the strengths and weakness, weaknesses and maybe not the word that I want to use, but the difficulties that like really, really thinking about what kind, how notation enables us, inhibits us and things like that. So I'm spending a lot of time think, trying to learn, learn like where, how do you go forward from that? And it was a really funny experience too, because um, in a certain sense, this, um, the audio scores project is a lot, is a lot less hands-on because you're really giving the reins to the performer. It's like, tell me what sounds you're enjoying to make that fit this template that I've set up for you. And it becomes, and it's very, and it's very, it's also very intimate and very enjoyable and really interesting, really fun. Um, but when you have a score in front of you and like going back to this, like, okay, um, this sound here from here to here, should be going from Sul, Sul Tasto to Sul Ponticello. And again, over here later, it should also be doing the same thing. And then like the tempo is, is getting too fast and then getting too slow. And it was really, really jarring to go back to that experience of being so precise. Mm. And I'm and right now I'm trying to see, is there a way to like create a middle ground where I can uh, have my cake uh, allow the performers to decorate it and we collectively share it <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like you know a good I mean? time man i want to be a part of that cake <laughs> i 
My favorite, uh, uh, my favorite thing to eat is probably cake. Cake is good. Yeah, I think um, one thing that I could imagine is is a dictator on or what will dictate whether or not you use that method is is what the um, what exactly it is you're envisioning for the piece, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm sort of I'm wondering, have you? Have you, because, you know, in the classical musical world, I mean, you know, it's historically like classical musicians are just giant, it's a giant cover band, right? <laughs> you know, um, and, and generally, um, not a lot of experience with improvising. So have you run into that with any performers where they, their level of comfort with doing this sort of thing is, is, is kind of low? And um, like, how do you, you know, I, mean, I don't know if you've hit, hit that yet, but I mean, what do you well, I'll speak. That? I'll speak from personal experience because um, I say that I improvise and have improvised, but I never bill myself as one. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm basically do, I did the classical music thing. I'm doing traditional Japanese music now. I compose for Japanese instruments. I compose for Western instruments and, the com- and many different combinations. But I am not comfortable saying that I'm an improviser because I've never, I haven't studied it thoroughly. Mm-hmm. I, I want to really get my heels into it and like learn more about doing it. And I'm, I just picked up, um, oh, what is it called? It's a, the Anthony, one of, it's a book by Anthony Braxton with the Graham Locke afterward, I think. Mm-hmm. But reading, but reading, finally reading about other things, and yeah, from my at least from my point of view, I'm not comfortable saying that I'm an improviser. Um, I've done, like I said, I've done it, but I don't feel that I know enough to say that it's something that I actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it really comes down to a point of um, like doing it enough, getting used to it. I don't know if getting familiar with the syntax or vocabulary of it, of a, uh, of a language, as some people might say, I don't know how important that is. And I think this might, then again, I'm going out of my comfort zone just by mentioning, but um, like, I can't, I can't play charts. I can't, I can't read chord changes or anything like that. I don't know how to do that. Um, never been very good I wasn't good at it when I played on saxophone but admittedly I was only playing saxophone for three years at that time I didn't even know you um, played saxophone <laughs> my very first instrument was alto saxophone then oh. I went to tenor saxophone and then uh, what was it so you started in, the, du- the single read life I was a single reader and, right. then, and then in fifth grade my band teacher pointed me pointed at me one day and I think I was wearing a shirt with an Adidas logo on it. And I remember her saying one day she had pointed at that Adidas logo and she said, you're not a saxophone player, you're a bassoon player. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, what the fuck is a bassoon? <laughs> <laughs> but then in six, but seventh grade, I started playing bassoon and I was uh, pretty into it for all of high school. And... I, I liked I liked being the weird kid. There's no there's no if ands or buts about it. It's like I like making the weird sounds, the honky sounds, and the early love was like Stravinsky. And the pieces that made me want to become a composer were uh, Puro Lunaire and um, what's the other one? 
Black Angels, the George Trump String Quartet. Those were the two pieces that made me want to compose uh, when I was like 13 and then, I don't know, 17. Some powerful Um, pieces, man. Oh, yeah. You know me. I I only like the light stuff. (laughs) Just some, uh, some, some Sonny and Cher. Nothing too oh, yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, give me give me all those bright tone rows. Make sure they come with a mandolin solo, right? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. You saw the... that video, right? Yeah, yeah. The that old ta- old atonal music. It's uh, awesome. I uh oh. that's so all right. So you're you're playing bassoon in high school and yep. and and uh where and then Montclair. Yep. And start... I got lucky because Harry, Harry, I think he's still, Harry Searing, I think he's still teaching bassoon there. Mm-hmm. He uh, wanted me to, like, get my sound in order and, like, work on a couple of technical things so I could be, like, a, um, a level-headed bassoonist instead of, a, uh, like, just a lunatic. Um, but he also knew that I wanted to go out and, like, learn how to play barrio and circular breathe and write a piece that had multiphonics for 20 minutes straight and things like that. And he was very encouraging. Um, But there was also a part of me that I can only say this now in hindsight that I, there were certain things on that instrument that I plateaued on sooner than I realized. Um, Now that I think about it, I wonder if I'm going to hit a point on Shakuachi and just be like, okay, I should stop playing and stop doing this. (laughs) But I don't know, man. What what with plateau? What for bassoon playing? It was uh, the the double tonguing um, and like putting in all the out. And there was a certain element of like also orchestra. Like for bassoon, I I felt like at the time there was only a few limited numbers of ways to do it, and so I really felt shoehorned by like you have to learn all the excerpts. You have to be able to play. Mm-hmm. Um, last movement, Beethoven four from memory at tempo with the double tonguing or Ravel left hand concerto third movement. Um, and they're phenomenal excerpts and whatever, but, um, I don't know if I knew it then. I think now I'm just too much of a square peg to have wanted to fit into those roles to begin with. Um, but yeah, in the nicest way possible, I didn't want to, I think even then I didn't want to be part of the, the so-called cover band, as you described it. Mm. Um, I have, yeah, that's the, that's the nice version of it. <laughs> <laughs> I have a more, more pointed analogy, but I don't think I should say it out here. <laughs> you can say whatever you're feeling, man. <laughs> whatever whatever you want to let go or keep inside it's fine by me i'm not no you're good <laughs> I, but I, I, like... have, I have to ask i have to ask two quick questions um totally. what is your favorite kind of cake because i don't want to forget to ask that and were you always a guitarist yeah cake oh my god i mean chocolate i love chocolate man but, but okay can we agree white chocolate is not chocolate oh totally i okay I, okay I, okay, I was I was very concerned for a second. <laughs> I um I like really rich chocolate. So give me um like uh death by chocolate or uh a chocolate mousse. Um I'm not a fan of German chocolate cake. Okay. Or, or is it just called German cake? I don't know what it is. Like it's the I'm not sure. Yeah. I, 
I don't even know what the hell it is, honestly. But <laughs> whenever I have it, I'm always excited because it's chocolate. And then when I eat it, I'm like, it's not the chocolate I want. Um, this is not these. These are not the chocolates you are searching for. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like I like rich chocolate. I like yeah that like the bitterness that a lot of people don't like. I'm into that. Oh, so you're like you're like me, seventy five, like seventy to eighty five percent chocolate is totally edible. You got and, it. And best enjoyed with a really rich scotch. You got it, man. Ah, uh, see, there it is, <laughs> scotch. Um, yeah. I like scotch. Scotch does not like me. <sighs> I think alcohol in general. It's like uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's like um, uh, no, double... no. Let's not give it too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> it 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 warms you up a little bit. It loosens uh, it loosens the soul. You know, um, yeah. One thing for me, I I sort of plateaued with with guitar in at Montclair. Um, really, in the I never, sense, I never felt that way when I saw you play, though. Oh man, that means a lot, man. I I struggled a lot. Um, I struggled a lot with the, the way I plateaued was I struggled a lot with balancing composing and practicing guitar because I I took both very seriously. And I wanted to be exceptional on the guitar. And so I practiced, when I practiced guitar, I practiced hard and, and like I practiced with a high intensity and a high focus, but then I wasn't composing. So then I'd start composing and do the same thing, but I wasn't practicing, you know? And, and so I, that's one of the things I always found composers who are both performers and composers like um, Amy Williams or, uh, uh, Alex Minchek or someone like that. Like, I find them fascinating, man. Cause I, I had never, I think I'm competent enough on the guitar that I can, I can fill in for someone somewhere. I've done it before, you know, like I've, I filled in for like opera gigs or whatever, but, um, yeah. So at Montclair actually it was like, I think our last year I, I decided, I was like, I have to commit to composing. Like I'm still going to play, play my instrument and finish my undergrad whatever but if i want to be a good composer i i can't play guitar as seriously as i've been so no i hear you yeah it, it's difficult because i think both of us maybe have this um we want to do a lot of things but the problem is, is we want to we want to do them <laughs> dude it, let me ask you this what when it comes to uh and this totally relates um but how do you read books like when you read a book, do you read the entire book? Like, what is your? Well, it depends on the it depends on the type of book. So we should start there first, I think. Okay. Um, um, what type What types of reading do you do? Oh, let's see. I do I do a lot of nonfiction these days, um, and so I've been doing a lot of research on Japanese instruments, and starting to read in Japanese which demands a lot of attention so when I'm reading in Japanese it's like it's pretty slow um but the strategies I use for that I think are different because there's a lot more guesswork involved in what the meaning is um like deciphering the individual characters and how they interact with one another and then the sort of so there's that um but when I'm reading in English these days I'd say, yeah, when I think back on the last three years, 
almost entirely nonfiction. Um, a lot of it for coursework. Um, but I try to I try to not skim. I don't I don't like doing that because I tend to not I just can't retain knowledge that way. I don't I don't feel it's productive for anybody at that level. Um, I imagine there's a lot of questions too that you're not you're you're unable to answer if you just skim. Yeah. So. Yeah, I try not. I try to like really make the time to and it's um i get to, and i get distracted very easily i have add and it's very easy to <laughs> find one point in a book that'd be like oh that's really interesting and then i'll get sidetracked and then i'm totally screwed <laughs> um but i and yeah it also depends on what the purpose is uh so like sometimes you have no choice and you have to scan mm-hmm. um but if it's personal reading it's usually um yeah, a lot. Of, it's been a lot of nonfiction stuff. Um, most recently, the books that have left a mark for me was, um, and all and all of this uh, came about as uh, uh, I'm a, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I'm uh, hopped on the wagon later than I should have. Um, but after the murder of George Floyd, I really wanted to educate myself on these things that need to be read about and spoken about. So the last three book or three of the last few books that I've read that have really taken the rug out of, uh, from under me were, um, Stamp from the Beginning, Eva Mix Kendi, um, Born a Crime, Trevor Noah, and... Uh, autobiography of Malcolm X and yeah and those are those are books that I found like I wanted to read them from the beginning and I think they would have been impossible for me to have skimmed mm. um and I and uh yeah the the reading those three books over the past summer was quite an experience um and I would also add that I've been composing less because I want, I feel like I have been operating in a vacuum and I need to learn more about my about our collective surroundings as human beings. Mm. Um, who, who was the second author you said? Trevor Noah. Oh, oh, Daily the, Show. Yeah, he, his, he has an autobiography called Stamp, not Stamp from the beginning. Oh, wait, hold on. What did I say? I don't remember the order now. You said uh, "Stand for the Beginning," Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah, and then you said the Trevor Noah one. I didn't. Know, yeah, I, I, didn't, a, I didn't catch the name. Born a crime. He I he uh, lived uh, during the apartheid, right? Yeah. In uh, uh, South uh, Africa. South Africa was it Johannesburg or? I can't remember off the top of my. I think so. And and then yeah, and then Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Um, what what period in his life in Malcolm X in his life did he write his autobiography? Because la- later in his life he 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 denounced a lot of the stuff that he yeah said in so the beginning the, right the autobiography I think was written very much towards the end of his life uh, with the help of a journalist whose name is escaping me right now um, 
but it was a very, very tight collaboration with a lot of back and forth. And it was from what the afterward, as written by, um, uh, what's his name? I feel terrible. I'm, I've got to look this up because I'm going to, I'm going to hate myself. Dude, you can't remember everything, man. <laughs> I could try. <laughs> yeah, you could try. You might drive yourself even crazier than ever trying, you know? I'm, I mean, it's, it's me. I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah. Alex Haley, that was the name of the journalist. But yeah, it was, I think it was towards the end of, of Malcolm X's life that that was written and that. And I'd seen them, I'd seen the film. Um, but it's interesting because when I work with images, things move a lot faster and I'm really good with visual information. I'm good with like general visual information. I'm good with faces and things like that. I'm really bad with words. Mm. And again, I think this, and as a kid, I always kind of struggled with word processing and learning and kind of learning disabled uh, ADHD and struggling in classes and reading materials. And especially so when it comes to reading materials, I like to spend time with it. I like to revisit a lot um, and really try to take in all the points. I remember my first year of grad school, like if we had, we'd have a bunch of articles to read for classes and I'd usually have to read them three times or anywhere from three to six times. And with, and like increasingly faster and faster with each, with each progressive reading. But if I didn't read them at least three times, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't be able to like come up with a good thesis on, or what their thesis was and going forward from that. So, yeah. Well, I'm totally with you on that. The last thing you just said, man, about like when I was in grad school, we read um, Stockhausen's, uh, God, I don't remember what is it, but it's like this thing he wrote about like time perception or something or the experience of time. And like, it was so dense and I, yeah, I'm the same way where I have to go back through something several times to, to really kind of so have it soak soak in, you know, before yeah. I could even like, like, first, it's like, what are they saying? <laughs> before I could say my thoughts on it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of realized recently for me is I, I'll start to read something. I read mainly nonfiction. I don't actually read fiction at all. I don't read any novels. And um, it's just, I, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I don't, I don't. <laughs> um, but whenever I read stuff, I, I, I only read so much of it. And I kind of realized recently that like, I think part of it is because I find something or I read something where I, I reach a point where I find it interesting and I just sit on it for a while and think about it. You yeah, know? and I kind of don't continue the process, but it, like you said, it depends on what I'm reading, you know. Yeah. So uh, one book, which I'm gonna I'm gonna mention this book every time I can on this podcast, whenever whenever reading comes up. But this book called "The Righteous Minds" by uh, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Um, the subtitle I think is even more clear. It's called uh, "Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion," and he's a moral psychologist. And so he goes through like this whole 
history, like the first part of the book, which is like a couple hundred pages, he goes through the whole history of like reasoning and logic and like the philosopher's definition of morality and how it shifted over time and stuff. And uh, that was a book where I read from cover to cover just because I was so excited and interested in what was happening, you know? Yeah. Um, but then you, but it, it sounds like one of those books where you're also going to miss so much information if you don't revisit it. And I, I think it's interesting because depending on what you're like, again, what you're reading and what your own personal interests are. And um, like, there are certain books that lend themselves better to a sort of hunt and peck method of rereading. And there it's, what is it? There's so many different ways to skin the proverbial kitty. <laughs> oh, that beautiful little feline. I love cats. I wish I wasn't allergic. Oh my God. I, I can't. Yeah, man. I, the amount of cat memes and stuff that you post online, like it's, it's all, it's all a facade. It's it saddens facade. me to know that you can't have a cat. Like, like it's so clear how much you love them. And I probably couldn't own a dog either. I'm also allergic to those. Do you own any animals? Nope. What about like any centipedes or cockroaches in the apartment? introduce you to my cactus uh, who i named tonberry oh my my girlfriend's gonna be excited it just it looks like a it, like it's a colony of tonberries oh, what is a tonberry tonberry is one of the characters one of was a character in final fantasy mm. i don't remember if it continued or not but uh i probably should have just named it cactar because there's in Final Fantasy VIII, there was a giant cactus spirit monster that you could capture and put on your side, and it had you would you would summon it, and it would take like I don't know ten seconds for it to appear, and then it would rain a hail of ten thousand needles on it on your opponent. Oh my god, that sounds like a terrible death. I know, right? <laughs> Well, in, like with the names, uh, Cactar is cool, but I have to say, I like I like Tonberry. That's that's, that's yeah. Really nice. So Tonberry was is um, sort of il, il, elusive figure, and it, it's green, has a lantern, and when you f you have to fight it first before it joins your team, but the fight consists of you trying to beat it before it can get to you, which is it just slowly walked up to you over the course of like three or four minutes, and then it would stab you with a dagger. And it would it would one hit your your character. Mm, Jesus, yeah. My yeah. buddy used to play Final Fantasy a lot. Um, what what was this like? Final Fantasy Nine? And uh, I don't remember. I only played Final Fantasy Eight. Mm. Uh, I was one of those weird kids who got an Xbox three sixty and I uh, as a present and I returned it to the store. <laughs> you, you just didn't dig it. No, it was a gift, and I just, I think at that point, I wanted to do more music and arts than anything oh, okay. else. Okay. Um, but then, of course, hilariously enough, a few years later, somebody got rid of their Xbox, and then I wouldn't stop playing Ninja Gaiden up until the point where I graduated high school. Ooh, <laughs> there you go. You found your, you found your, uh, your calling there. <laughs> but I haven't had a TV uh, in my apartment or living space for the past 10 years, believe it or not. So... So you haven't watched any any uh, t television series or movies or anything? 
Oh, no, no. I mean, I have, just probably not as much as I would like to. Um, I mean... Oh, duh. You could do it on your laptop. I'm an yeah. idiot. No, you're good. I mean, I watched Breaking Bad like everybody else. Oh. That was fun. Mr. Robot has, was a favorite television show. Um, yeah, Mr. Robot's cool. I've seen a few episodes, but I really liked it. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm... I'm a big fan of it, but there are a couple of episodes in it where the content matter is extremely triggering. No, oh, really? Yeah, especially oh, in seasons three and four. Well, Christian Slater, I feel like... He's brutal in that show. Oh, my God. I I haven't seen much. I can't... I haven't <laughs> seen his whole filmography, but, like, there has been much he's done that I didn't like with him, I should say. Like, like what like his acting in it, I should say. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've always enjoyed him as an actor. Um, yeah. True I mean, Romance. What, one of early Quentin Tarantino movies. Yeah. That, that's a fun one. I mean, the reason... I, the this show is really brilliant in terms of its arc, and the material is very compelling, and the, the characters have a lot of really complex background, and it demands a lot of... It demands a lot of attention... And I've rewatched this year, the entire thing, maybe, th- I don't know, three or four times at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really fascinating to peel the layers back uh, retro- like in retrospect, because there's so many things you learn as the show progresses. And watching how intense the dynamic between Christian Slater and Rami Malek is, is so interesting to watch. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh and Rami is an awesome actor too. Um it's yeah, it's a cool show. I, I need to I need to get into that though. What what uh what streaming service is that on? I think it's I think it's unfortunately or I've been watching it on Amazon Prime. I'm not proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Because it's Amazon Prime. <laughs> is it is Amazon is Netflix are you do you like Netflix more? I don't have Netflix. Okay. I have Hulu. I'm sure they're problematic too. <laughs> I heard recently that Hulu was upping their prices. Uh, that that's okay with me. <laughs> it's pretty cheap to begin with. Isn't like six bucks or something? Yeah, it's like a it's like a really nice beer a month. <laughs> a really nice beer a month. That's that's good. That makes me think of um, what was that? Uh, Egan and Sons. You remember Egan and Sons in Montclair? That place was fun. With uh, because they that was a microbrew, they made their own beer there. That was a nice beer, yeah, yeah. They had the and they had pretty decent pizza, they did. I, yeah, I think, um, who's who do, who do we go there for? I think it was like after like Carlos's recital or someone's, I can't remember. I don't, um, yeah, we I went to Halcyon after mine, and I don't know why I did that. It was so that was such a bad idea. What what is that? I don't know if I've been there. Halcyon is the is the sister restaurant next door to it that was so much more expensive. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. For anyone for anyone who doesn't know, these are places we're talking about in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, northeastern New Jersey, uh, not far from what is it like thirty minutes from New York City? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's not far. If you if you're standing up. Like uh, Montclair, the university is like on the top of a mountain, like Montclair, right? So uh, you can see the city in the middle of the winter clearly, like the, the cityscape and everything. Oh, that's why I always hated walking on that goddamn campus because it was so hilly. Yeah, yeah. 
walking across it was always a a trip, literally. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was rough. Didn't that you, was, you, used, you always commuted, right? Yeah, man, I commuted and, since day one. Oh, my condolences. Yeah, it was like a forty-five minute drive. It was uh, it was long enough to where it wasn't long, but it was long enough to where it was annoying too. Yeah, you, you can't know. even listen to it. Like, you could probably squeeze in like a solid 40 minute album mm-hmm. but with all the times that you have to merge and all the it, it would be a, it would be a challenge to squeeze in a good half an hour album or not like listen to a 72 minute cd and feel like you're losing a lot of it in the process well i i, I grew up i listened to a lot of punk growing up and most punk albums are like 20 minutes so <laughs> okay you you win you win <laughs> So I can I can easily throw in two albums for the drive and uh, you know go through plenty of music right there. Nice. But I I, uh, I want to circle back real quick when I mentioned the whole thing with reading and like how you read and stuff. Yeah. I I had this thought and this can be totally inaccurate, but because you mentioned that playing the bassoon, it was like you sort of plateaued, and I had a similar experience with guitar where I had to like decide what I needed to do more, you know? And um, I kind of wonder if like, uh, like with reading and stuff, you know, it's like, I, I, I realized I read only so much until I can, you know, understand exactly what it is that I'm, I'm reading. Yeah. And so I wonder if there's something there with like having to know what it is that you're doing before you actually do it, you know? Like being like, like, so with composing, it's like, I stopped playing guitar so I can be a better composer. Yeah. And I felt like I couldn't be as good at guitar as I wanted to be. So with, and then with with like reading a book, it's like, I'll read a paragraph and then think about that paragraph because I need to understand it before I can continue. Sort of, you know, like, see, I gotta, I gotta do more of that. I really need to do more of that. But I don't do it all the time, but like it's I, I just noticed lately I've been doing that more. Or, or I should say I noticed it. This lately is when I notice it. Uh, I see, I see. You know? Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, when I read The Righteous Minds, like the I've I, I read it once, and like you said, I missed a lot of information because it's so it, there's so much. Yeah. You know? He sets it up in the beginning where it's like, here's like philosophers since day one all the way up until today what they talk about let's forget about a lot of that (laughs) and like yeah Yeah. it gets into this whole thing um but yeah that's why i brought it up because i i wondered if there was something there if you've ever thought about that or what your thoughts are on like i don't know would you think that would you say that's perfectionism or like i don't know no i wouldn't call it perfectionism well there's an element, there's an aspirational element to it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like, we want to go back and we want to get everything right. Um, this brings up an interesting point. Um, you have the written object, whether this is a musical score or it's a book or it's a painting or it's a video, but you have a recorded object, um, which, depending on, which, depending on how you're viewing it, why you're viewing it, and what you're trying to get out of it that recorded source material is sort of the be like considered the be all end all object or like if you think about written sheet music 
there's the concept that this is a idea this is like the platonic ideal is you perfectly recreate all of these things and then if you take it towards let's say it's a fiction like you're doing lord of the rings there's a story and there's certain things that you can talk about and there's a narrative or there's some function there and you can reread it to go back to the details and then there's like scholarly reading which also will have a point of view or focus but to your point about perfectionism or aspirations i think at, at the end of the day it's all about us trying to just go in and whatever our impressions of that, that particular object are and like we keep going back to see if our perception of what we saw read thought the first time remains the same and if it changes we as uh active participants are interested in how and why that's changed mm. does that sort of make sense yeah yeah so a book that i've reread many times over the past 20 years is uh not 20 years let's say 15 years albert camus the plague mm. um which is a book that i think i first read when i was 13 or 14 and i've probably reread it five times since then and it's interesting um i always am comparing it to the first time i read it and it's like and the thing that's interesting is you don't again it's it's like the chair that i mentioned the Mort morton's chair it's like where are you sitting when you re when you read that the first time where were you the second time you read it the third time the fourth time the fifth time um the written material is not changing but everything else is <laughs> that's what's interesting <laughs> You know yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, also your um, how you're approaching it as you're reading it too is changing. Like, are you sad? Are you open-minded? Are you angry? Are you, you know, like that's going to affect how you take in the information and, and the way that you interpret it, you know? Totally. Yeah. What here's, here's a question. I think I've asked this once on here before, but I think it's interesting. It's an interesting question is what, what do you, what sort of advice do you give someone who's a non-musician and is completely green, never experienced music outside of just mainstream? What do you tell them? What advice do you say when it comes to listening to uh, new music, particularly like non-tonal, sound-based, whatever? I say, I think what I've done in the past is I tell them that all of their reactions to it are totally valid and there is no right way to think about these sorts of things. Mm. And that some people might tell some people might tell you that. But that you should just listen, you should just go in with open ears, see how you react, ask yourself why, and don't and the important part is to be as judge to not be judgmental about it towards the people who are presenting it or yourself um and especially as a presenter who has been in situations where the audience has to hear some really weird stuff and they're not musicians and they're not 
they're not like or like they know Beethoven, Mozart, and they and they might know popular music, but it's like, okay, now we're gonna play Lachenmann, and they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but like any other experience, um, the more open-minded you are to something that is completely foreign to you, the more you'll take away from it. That doesn't mean you're gonna like it. Mm, I so like I, I like that. I think it's so. I think it's important to be like. This is going to be an experience that's outside of your uh, your your previous concert going experiences. That's good. That's healthy. That's fine. If you don't like that, that's fine. All we ask is that you just listen, take it in, and you don't. And this doesn't have to be your main modus of of, of listening for the rest of your life. That I think is one of the things that I really struggle with. Is it's like like a really mean review says X, Y, and Z things about it. But it's because it's in comparison to a standard, and at some point you kind—it's of, like, is that really necessary? Is that really helpful? I don't know. That might be too idealistic or too rosy glasses. But I think it's important to just go in and like try to have no expectations and just really open yourself up to it because that that's the only way you're gonna that's the bet that's the best way to do it in my opinion um similar for me anyway like going from bassoon to shakuachi improvising on bassoon versus improvising on shakuachi the way i got used to it and the way i fell in love with doing it was just trying things um you don't it's detrimental to stay safe if that makes sense oh totally um so and the same thing with reading or film you can tell someone to watch human centipede or antichrist or solo and whether or not those films have artistic merit i don't know i'm not qualified to answer those questions uh i haven't seen 120 days and i haven't seen antichrist or human centipede um but there might be a current there might be a moment in a film like antichrist which has actually been a film i really wanted to see for a while um i think that's uh lars von trier um but like there are there are going to be moments in a lot of things that you see and hear that when that may not make sense to other people um there's this uh when was it made? I think it was 1997. There's this sci-fi horror film called Event Horizon. And it's one of my favorite films. And I admit it's not a really good film. But there's something about the arc and the way it works. And it's, it's so cheap. And it's kind of cheesy. But it's really fun. And at the end of the day, if it's a if it's a work or something that resonates with someone, that's really why we're in it to begin with. Totally. Uh, yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like what you said about um, like you have to be open minded. Like that's like that's that's you know um, step one more or less. You know, um, and and sort of allowing the allowing whatever your experiences of of the of the music or of the film or whatever it is. Um, yeah, to to be what it is. Um, <clears throat> This is interesting because I was having this conversation earlier today about uh, 
uh, film reviews, like film critics and stuff like that. Yeah. And and the basis of which people review films, like when you look at RottenTomatoes.com or something. I <laughs> honestly, I am not. Um, I'm not interested in what people have to say about films until I see it. You know, and yeah, and uh, you know, any like or anything really honestly but like like i'm I'm a like film for me is like a, a hobby you know yeah so um it's, it's not like composing or something where like i'm like so you know this is my life um but when i when i watch a movie or i hear about a movie or someone says like oh well on rotten tomatoes it got like a 30 percent i'm like yeah i really don't care because <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's great man like a lot of people apparently think that it's not great but uh uh that and it's it's cool that they can say what they want and i totally do that i'm still gonna watch the movie <laughs> yep totally um and and i think that sort of aligns with what you were saying about the open-minded like coming to it and being open to what it might be <sighs> how you feel about it um and yeah, I think that's important, especially with the yeah. uh, the medium that we're working within and how we operate within that medium. Yeah. I yeah. also think it's really important that whatever experiences you have uh, in something that you're not well-versed in, so let's say it's literature which or poetry or something like that, use everything that you have in your, in your toolbox to explore it. Um, so if I come across a poem... And I, know not, and I really don't know anything about poetry, but you read it, read it slowly, read it quickly, read it aloud, read it aloud very loudly, change the pitch, but like explore how that, how it sounds, how it feels when your jaw is moving. Um, similarly, if I'm checking, if I go to a museum and looking at the art, I'm always, I'm, I can't, I can't help myself. I almost always think about it in terms of rhythm texture all the things we're told to think about in music but let's be real the two work very well with one another and it's like okay this piece is interesting it's asymmetrical the rhythm of this composition is x y and z mm -hmm. and there's something about this that is working for me is not working for me scale all these things they're they're very uh very analogous and work well uh in terms of like how i process this information or how someone else could process the information but if you have a frame of reference use it even even if you think it doesn't feel uh useful at the time because the worst thing that you're going to take away from it is like that didn't work i'll try something else <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I could also see that that could that could be detrimental as well because then it's like um, if you're coming if you're approaching something, thinking of it in a specific way, yet it's not represented like that, then you're gonna have a a sort of um, I don't want to say twisted, but like tainted view or something. You know, like it's like if you if you come to look at a um, you're like oh here's one of my paintings and they're like oh you paint and their their image of what painting is is like mona lisa and then they look at your painting and they're, and they're thinking like well this isn't painting it looks nothing like the mona lisa you know like that's that's where i think it could be detrimental yeah but i think also it's important that we have dialogue where we have conversations about these things 
Um, as you probably could guess, I have no desire to paint the Mona Lisa. <laughs> um, there are many, there are many people who can do that kind of artwork. Um, whether or not I reach that point of a realistic recreation, I'm not sure if I'll ever hit that point. Um, but I'm also partly not concerned with that. Um, my so the way I paint is kind of the opposite of how I compose, um, where usually when I'm composing, I have a really, really good idea of scale and scope, which I usually do not have in painting. Like I may or may not have an actual like image in my head that I'm going to paint, but I just might go ahead and start doing it. Um, like for example, this one here, I just knew that there was this piece of wood that I found on the street that I love. And all I knew was that I wanted to find a way to highlight the beauty of this uh, piece of wood that I found on the street. Um, and, the, and the scale is very large, as you can see, but it was basically entirely um, in the moment, just going for it with a palette knife and painting. And over the course of like two weeks, it came together, but there was never a pre-plan for it. Whereas with um, even the audio scores, have a lot of parameters and like what am I going what tools am I going to use in Ableton when I get there how am I recording it what are the instruments that are going to be used um how am I producing sound on them is it going to be standard is it unstandard is it a kitchen utensil and therefore does not have a standard playing technique mm -hmm. you know those sorts of things um and really what I'm thinking about when I paint is more along the lines of if I was to take a single moment in time and freeze it in paint, what might that look like? Um, and I really like this image that I use in painting with the, especially with the shoes, like imagine your foot hits the floor, there's energy that comes out and it'll emanate and it'll emanate. Or if I speak, my word is physically formed in my oral cavity, it comes out, it hits your eardrum, you respond, there's vibrations in your ear, there's a response, and then you may or may not, and then you may respond verbally or some other way. But I like this idea of freezing all of that energy in, in a moment in time. And, and so I'm really fascinated by this, I, that kind of idea of, and the other thing is, um, this is an entirely romantic idea of freezing energy in time whether or not I'd actually want that to happen in reality, I, I think I would be too scared to actually know what that, that would look like or real or accept what it would look like. You know what I mean? Oh my God. That's, that's a wild thought, man. I know. Right. I'm picturing, it makes me think of those videos where you see people where it's like the middle of winter and they go out on a balcony and they throw a pot of boiling water and it freezes midair. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. It's so like that. That's what's coming to mind when I hear you say freezing energy in time. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> you have an Etsy account where you sell your paintings, right? Yes, I do. Can um, you can you send that to me? I want to pull that up and show it to the people. Yes, let me send it to you on Bookface. I had hot pot last night. I did not eat a turkey this year. How was the hot pot? Oh, so good. You are the second person on this podcast to mention hot pot. 
hot pot is awesome <laughs> i think sooner or later uh this is going to be a, a recurring theme you never know let me know if that link works all right let me see here by the way i'm official i've started driving because i got sick of being stuck at home so chicago is what six hours from here Chicago, uh, Pittsburgh. No, I think it's going to be longer than that, man. Well, I'll hit you up at some point, I'm sure. Uh, I would love that. Uh, I would, and yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll cook up some. Uh, I've been teaching myself how to make curry and like exploring all the different recipes. Be, dude, you know who else is here in Chicago? Steve Kowalski? <laughs> no, I have no idea. Who's Steve Kowalski? He is another composer friend of mine. Okay, he, um, I think he's at Re- is he, I think he's at Revolution Brewing. I can't remember, but he's you. Would, I think you guys would get along. Ooh, where's that Revolution Brewing? Let me check. Yeah, yeah. Um, Carlos is here, man. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Holy shit, the Montclair band. <laughs> That'd be pretty wild. Uh, I've been to his place a couple times, hung out with him and uh, uh, his wonderful girlfriend Alexa. Um, yeah, so Stephen works at Revolution Brew Pub, and he also, believe it or not, studied with Elizabeth Brown for a bit. Nuts, man. Ah, oh, what a wonderful person. She's amazing. Heck yeah. So check this out. We got, um, oh, for anyone who listens to the podcast, you're missing out right now. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But uh, we got we got some, some really fascinating and exciting uh, paintings going on over here. This is this is Devin's Etsy account. Devin, what do what do people have to, or, or should they type in right here? Uh, Osamu Paints. Is that yep, that? that's the that's the channel. Um, and uh, there's also the hyperlink that you that I sent you that people can access the site through the same one. I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm doing an extended Black Friday sale until December fourth. Oh, right here, people. Check this out. 30% off everything. Um, I, I I was going to, earlier this year, I think it was, I was going to pur- purchase one of your paintings. And then uh, financial situations hit a standstill, which prevented me, unfortunately, from buying anything. Uh, sooner or later, I will. But, uh, oh, was it because of the quarantine? I can't remember. I think it was around that time. Yeah, it was, but... There's uh I'm I'm drawn to this one right now and this one. So is there any particular one you want me to go to? No man, there's about 40 pieces up there right now. Oh really? Yeah, you got to keep scrolling. Oh my god. See, I'm just learning how to use a computer. That makes two of us. <laughs> and there's some there're also some prints which are reproductions of other things and those are much more re- uh, much more reasonable prices sure yeah yeah um well i don't think these are unreasonable at all honestly uh i mean this one right here 875 you know um and then, that's a print <laughs> okay okay um yeah. so for anyone <clears throat> listening to kind of describe this Devin, do you mind if i try to describe this in some capacity and then you can give your yeah go for it go for it so I am by no means a painter or an artist. I am a composer. That's the art that I do is music. Um, but one thing, so with Devin's paintings, what I, the way I kind of see it is it's, it's, kinda, it's abstract 
in the sense that there's no specific strict straight lines. I mean, this piece that I have right now actually has some lines in it um, and some circles, but but uh, the colors in it, there's no hard lines with the colors so much, except actually with this one right here, there's the <laughs> those, those few lines. And then it, it, it's sort of like a lowercase eyes stacked uh, out of sequence in a way. Um, those are uh, those are people, as as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's I'm just as, uh, that's as realistic as I get. <laughs> that's there you go. Yeah. So there's there's this um, like abstraction from what is real, um, and uh, let's see here. So yeah, he kind of mends these colors together, where it's like one general sort of. Like right here, there's a lot of, I don't know, I guess, what would you say, like tans and browns going on? Yep. Yeah, but I wouldn't say it's a solid tan or a solid brown at all. And it's very textural too, where when you look at it, you feel like, it looks like you can, if you felt it, you would feel the contours like uh, looking at a geographical map where there's mountains and stuff. Um, yeah. So. I often think I often think of these as sort of, uh topographical maps of my brain at that specific moment there you um, go so this particular painting is a good example of that in that this um there's the kneeling figure on the bottom left corner which has a body sit, uh kneeling on the floor meditating um with a square head i affectionately refer to that as a blockhead portrait mm. um and you have on the opposite side is this sort of cascading um, set of shapes that was made with a palette knife, which gives a lot of texture. Um, depending on how much uh, paint I throw on it, I think the highest gesso sculpture I've made on its own or with modeling paste, whatever, was like two or three inches. This one is much more modest at about, I think, a quarter inch off the canvas. But I... And this, like one day, I hope and pray they'll make a paint that could survive uh, prolonged like human contact and finger oil that wouldn't mm. discolor it. But I like the idea that these are pieces that would be touched and interacted with. Mm -hmm. the, it, it's it's like a, yeah, and like I said a moment ago, you can totally see that too, um, which is one of the things that I really like about it. Um, and to kind of reiterate. Uh, the abstraction of it because it when when Devin had mentioned uh, that it's a guy kneeling so the guy he has like Devin said he has a square head but the head has it's 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 not a face there's no face there's like purples and 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 dark colors in there and then the body kneeling is a orange rectangle or I'm sorry a triangle <laughs> that's okay I failed high school math too I don't I don't know squares from geometry uh, man yep yeah, triangle has uh, 181 degrees in it, right? I think so. Sometimes. No, it's 180. I'm just fucking with you. Yeah, um, but no, you as you can see, like the terminology I'm using, I'm clearly not versed in uh, painting or art. No, you're good, yeah. man. You're good, man. So, so please humor my, uh, you know, novice, not even novice level, just uh, you know, lay person. Um, but yeah, I love them. I, I I love this. I love this type of art. I mean, um, uh, who was the dude that Feldman was um, pals with? 
He had a couple. Uh, he was buddies with most. I think Philip Guston might be one of the more obvious ones. There was another one who would do like two colors in <laughs> his paintings. Was it Rauschenberg? Not Rauschenberg. Um, uh, in that circle, I think in that circle there was Willem de Kooning, Rauschenberg, uh, Philip Guston. Shit, his name, I'm forgetting his name. He wrote a Rothko, piece. Rothko. Rothko, there it is. <laughs> oh my yeah, god, Mark Rothko. Yeah, this, this is the type of art that I do like. I like art that that has that abstraction, um, and where I look at it, and and it it's not obvious to me what it might be. Yeah, and part well, of with Mark Rothko. There's it's. Um, I love Rothko because it really invites you into the port, into the into the canvas, and it asks you to open yourself up to it. Um, mm. I remember having a really emotional experience seeing uh, a bunch of Mark Rothko paintings in the UK, and like I tried. It, I could. I found that I could not actually open myself up entirely to the paintings because it was too scary. Mm. Um, and these, there was, I think there was nine of them, and they're like, I don't know, six feet tall by nine feet wide. They're huge. They're huge. <laughs> and I, I had a moment where I was standing in front of one of them. I just, I just started crying. Oh man, that's that's powerful, dude. There's something. There's something there that's just. Oh, it was awesome. Oh, I that that's that's such a it's it's unexplainable honestly those sort of experiences you know why it hits yeah. you the way it does in that moment you know um, I remember this one right here I think you didn't you do this one earlier this year or maybe you posted it oh yeah this one in particular um, is interesting so that's um, this is part of a series of pieces that I refer to as uh, relics. Which has a lot of, which has some semi-daily objects in it, or objects from my own personal life that have sort of reached their end. So this one on the top, I guess left-hand corner, you have an old watch that broke and was not repair was not worth repairing, mm. and I ended up gluing it to this painting. And then on the other side of it, there is a shoe that also reached the end of its life. But there were a couple of major things that happened uh, while wearing those that particular pair of shoes. And I, that watch was mine for many, many years and used it countless interviews and God knows what else. And I wanted to extend their life further, if you will. Mm. And, but also just the general like thoughts on, we as humans tend to, have an affection for old objects, even after a certain point, or collecting things. And this is me pondering those things collectively with everybody else, if you will. Mm. I love that, man. And there's also a couple of broken clarinet pieces on it, and uh, a part of a mask from a little uh, figurine of a samurai and its armor. I um over the summer I got just randomly started getting really into samurai and uh the history of of uh um Japan and stuff like that. I, I didn't get too deep into it, but I, I, I became really interested in it. So that's, there's a lot of it. Yep. 
it's a lot of rich stuff yeah yeah i mean that whole culture with um with what turns into ronin right is that how you say that ronin yeah ronin? yeah um it make like the movie seven samurai that's, uh, a, which, that's a great film that's like my favorite movie man um which they're all essentially ronin right yeah in that film it's uh, basically that yeah for me that's not my favorite kurosawa film it's a beautiful film and it's really powerful mm-hmm. um for me it's probably uh kagemusha or akahige uh kagemusha is the shadow warrior and is um the story of a famous warlord who is killed and then his body he has a body double who takes over for him and pretend basically lives as this person um and it's an extraordinary story about loyalty um re- really extraordinary and a sort of historical film i don't remember how much of it is actually true to the history or not um but the other one also that's really powerful is called uh, akahige which is red beard and it's about a doctor in uh i think it's in the 19th century or 18th century but it's a really powerful story about again just a doctor helping people and trying to sort of live the best life that you can and these sorts of things they're very they're both very long films um they also have really incredible use of again uh sp- pacing and very little music is used in any of these films which i find yeah. them to makes it all that more powerful because you end up really focusing on these specific mo- uh, on the moments the characters the things that they're trying to say you there's no there's no extra sugar added um like for like the film inception which is a really fun film and kind of a guilty pleasure for me that soundtrack is so over the top i find it kind of comical because <laughs> <laughs> it's super loud, cause, low like burr right it's just super saturated mm. um was that hot zimmer I mean, it's a good film, and it's a fun film. It's and it's well, and it's it's fun to watch. But um, like, it's uh, if I think about the films and the ones that have really changed the way I watch movies, I think one of them would be the horror film from 1962 by Masaki Kobayashi called Kaidan the four steps of fear and it's oh my god that's sorry so that (laughs) film so that film is two hours and 30 I think it's two hours and 32 minutes there's 25 minutes of music in it yeah and when the music comes in you feel like the world is ending it is catastrophically terrifying it's like it's catastrophic it's claustrophobic it is so fucking scary and it's amazing I, I've watched that movie, and uh, yeah, it left a mark. Um, was that Takamitsu? Yes. Fuck That's, yeah, uh, man. He's doing, uh, I think, all, I th- so, and there's a documentary where he talks about that, and in the first vignette uh, during the mad scene where the husband has 
um, realized his wife has been dead all along, and he's now trapped in his old house that has become basically a haunted mansion. This, um, he used the sound of breaking wood against contact microphones to, and it, it sound it feels like you're in hell. It's so crazy, like. In the classical world, we understand Takamitsu through like November Steps or um, uh, a flock descends upon the Pentagon, the Pentagon Garden, right? Garden, yeah. Um, or Nostalgia, or yeah, um, Requiem. One of my favorite pieces is, uh, and then I knew Twas Wind with harp, viola, and flute. It was a yeah, that's a, a beautiful piece, companion piece for Debussy's Sonata. Um, yeah. I actually like the Takamitsu more than the Debussy. Oh, totally. Me too, man. <laughs> but but Takamitsu's film scores are insane. His his like the experimentalism that went into that and like his his creative mind fascinates the hell out. Like it fascinates me so much. Yeah, um, he's great. Going his another what was it? Another Kurosawa film, Don, is another great example of yes. minimal use of music for maximum kick in the ass. Um, like when the castle is burning to the ground and he is literally ripping off, uh, what is it, Mahler 9? Yeah. Uh, and you're like, well, this is just gut-wrenching. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, and I didn't realize that, like, a bunch of dead horses could be simultaneously so beautiful and so horrific. Well, it's funny you said earlier about the use of silence. Cause I remember there was a scene in that movie where um, there was a battle happening and all you hear is just like horse hooves. You hear swords and people screaming and stuff and there's no music. And, and I remember, I remember in that moment, like for me watching it, I was like, Oh my god like the tension was so high because i could hear people and like i wasn't like you know typically in uh uh an action movie like superhero movies that's like the big there's a big scene that's a big uh musical moment with like a minor key signature because someone's family is dying and then the, the hero is like no yeah you know? or you have lord of, or you have lord of the rings and it's in five four and they're ripping off mars again right right yeah but in that moment it was like takamita's like uh no, this this speaks for itself. Yeah, he did a documentary at one point. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. The documentary is, I believe it was on the Second World War and it's a four hour long documentary and there's 10 minutes of music. And they asked him- why oh, I heard he about that. that. And they asked him why he's like, you don't need me. Yeah, there you go, man. There you freaking go. Like the- um... I don't even know what you call that, man. But to just be able to, I, I don't know. I, I feel like any other person that you would bring into that, who's a, like a composer or whatever, whatever the medium is like, oh, we need a composer for this or something. It's like, they'd be like, oh, let me insert all these great things here. And like sound, sound, here's sound for this. But Takamitsu was like, this already is powerful enough. You don't even, yeah. like, what can I contribute? Yeah. You know? I think, I think you would enjoy this show. It's an old show, PBS. I think it's from the 70s only had one season, it's called I, Claudius. And John Hurt is in it, Patrick Stewart had hair when they <laughs> shot this. That's uh, a rare thing. Derek Jacoby was the lead role as Claudius. Brian Blessed, a lot of old school English actors in it. Um, the only music that was ever featured in this um, was the opening theme song, that was it. And the rest of it was di like just 
the actors working off each other. Um, it's extraordinary how how amazing uh, the interactions are because we talk about limitations, but we often forget how amazingly powerful they can be, and so and, and enable us to really do all this cool shit that we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting when you were talking, like way back in this conversation, we were talking about how do I know when an audio score is done? One of the ways I know that it's not that it's done, um, but if I add anything else to it, not only is there the fear that maybe it becomes a fixed media piece, but that it's too much and the proportion. And if the proportions go out of whack, the piece is screwed. I'd rather have something that's shorter and well-proportioned than something that is too long and the materials proportions don't line up. I'm not saying that it's going to be symmetrical. In fact, I think symmetry may or may not always be the most useful thing. Um, there, there are so many different ways to approach the idea of form. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that in and of itself could be a whole thing. <laughs> Dude, I, I I love I love what you're saying right now. Uh, proportions is something I've been thinking about a lot the last like like two years. I think I mean like it's been it's it's been something with every piece that I've written. I I'm I'm all I'm like okay, how is this? Am, am I allowing this to happen for as much as it needs to happen? Is is the music speaking as much as it needs to? You yeah. Know, how much am yeah. I injecting into it? My own whatever which then disrupts what it was, you know? Yeah, and the hard, I think the hardest thing for me, uh, both in terms of painting and composing is you come up with a fantastic idea. It's a great idea. Could, could be a three hour piece. It's a four minute commission. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're like, fuck, not again. <laughs> you're like what the fuck happened man like (laughs) and then you're like okay okay i got it now i got it now this is a great idea this is a great idea it's a three minute piece it's a 45 minute commission but that way but i find that it's easier to stretch than it is to compress the other thing though is like it's really easy to get into for uh formal pattern uh like certain patterns of forms that are really comfortable Mm -hmm. like um Flipping everything at the golden ratio, for example, is a really, really tried and true way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, or a palindromic structure. Um, ABA. AB, yeah. Going but way palind- back. But palindromes are really interesting, though, because we don't listen backwards. Totally. So I find that to be a really fun medium to play around with. Yeah, because it's it's symmetrical, but it's um, not recognizable. Yeah, because we, yeah, and that's, so as I had a a thought experiment a while ago, which was, could you write a theme and variations in reverse? But the problem with writing a theme and variation in reverse is that it does, at that point, if you're working with a backward structure, then it's going to be recognized in the wrong way. And it kind of becomes, it, it's uh, it's masturbatory, basically. Do you mean write the variations and then create a theme out of the variations or write a theme and then just do it all backwards? 
that's that's what I ended up doing. So mm. the theme, so the theme is a chorale. It's a multiphonic chorale for solo flute. And then I wrote all of the variations, and then I put them in backwards order. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I, yeah. But the problem was is that then the so-called theme became the final variation, and then the original like final variation ended up becoming the theme. <laughs> <laughs> but I it think, was it's uh... interesting though because from the point of view from the audience members, they really didn't they don't perceive it that way. Mm-hmm. and yeah. so it, it and then you st- and then you ask yourself like okay now what now how how can we learn from this experience as long as it's serving someone you know i i have no yeah. doubt that people got something from that and i know um oh god i think a uh, benjamin Britten. benjamin Britten wrote a theme of variations for guitar in the exact thing you're saying where the theme came at the very end of the piece and the variations started at the beginning. Yeah. Hard fucking piece. I seen the score. I can't play it. <laughs> it's one of the Julian Bream dedications, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Those pieces are wild. They, totally, man. Totally. Um, yeah, that's cool. I, I've always been interested in that. I, I've been interested in writing a theme of variations, honestly. I never have. I never have. And not, you know, obviously not like some strict like Da, 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 da. you know like like some like melodic bach chorale or whatever but like what you said a chorale in multiphonic see that's interesting yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of fun opportunities out there for things to do <laughs> that, and that's where the ideas come in you just have to be in, innovative and creative um you know finding a way what you did you connected two disparate things you took this historical thing which is a chorale we recognize this four-part writing, which is usually tonally harmonic, and you combined it with multiphonics, which is a 20... Well, I don't want to say it's a 20th century invention, because I don't know what the fuck people were doing before the 20th century. Like, maybe some clarinetists <laughs> were like, you know? <laughs> but yeah. um, but you took, like, this um, convention, we'll say, of the 20th century, and then melded, you know, put them together. Yeah. And then wrote a piece around that. So, um, yeah, man. I mean... Yeah, sometimes when I get bored, I'll try to write a, a four voice chorale, but the 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 bass is a is a twelve tone row. Oh, that's fantastic! Do you keep it? Do you keep it tonal? I try to use. I try to limit myself to nothing more extended than a ninth chord. Okay. Well, yeah, so uh, that's plenty tonal. You get some really interesting results because, and it's really hard to avoid parallel fifths. But I mean, who cares? Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a fun exercise, though. I, I, I do that, too. I do that, like, uh, just as an exercise. Like, let me write a a, a 10-measure four-part chorale, uh, and let me follow this the rules of four-part chorales as, as strictly as I can without referencing a book. <laughs> yeah. It's always good to be like, I can do, I can do, uh, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's a challenge, man. It's a, it's a, it's a welcoming challenge. I always enjoy it. Um. But I, I have to say, I, I'm at the point, I think I need to go have some dinner. Yeah, I, I was about to say, I'm also, I think we should, we should come to a close. What are, what are your plans for the rest of the night? You got any, uh, any, anything good coming up? It's like some, uh, some pesto, pesto. Uh... Oh, I had, uh, I had an early dinner actually, because I didn't eat enough today. Um, had some, uh, 
eel Japanese style. It was frozen. So I just mm. threw it in the oven and some rice and some broccoli. And that was very satisfying. Beautiful, man. I love that. Well, before we uh, before we end this recording here, is there anything uh, we showed some people your Etsy? Uh, we're gonna I'm gonna share that link in the description of this this episode so people can go to it and see all your awesome paintings. But is there anything that you want to uh, you want to you know tag with any like social media or um, events coming up or like just anything you know? Go well, if any if anyone's interested in upcoming concert stuff, I post updates to upcoming shows and things like that on my performer instagram which is d v n t s h a k u which i'll send that to adam the painting stuff is all through osamu paints and uh then there's the website which is up to date with all of the upcoming events as i currently am aware of them and that's greengiraffemusic.info and again, I'll send all this stuff to Adam, who is super badass. And again, I um, can't thank you enough for the opportunity to come on here and talk for all these so many minutes. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> Dude, oh, my pleasure, man. I'm so psyched we got to do this. Like, We haven't seen each other in years and, and hearing about all these awesome things you've been doing. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm psyched, man. So thank you for joining. We'll do this again sometime and we'll spin, we'll switch and I'll ask you about what you've been up to. <laughs> Huge thumbs up to that, man.